0: welcome to a lock-in and the Crate and Crowbar. This week we're talking about tabletop role-playing games, what they are, why we like them, and why you should try some that aren't Dungeons and Dragons. I myself am a long-time goblin botherer, but joining me to discuss this auspicious topic is an even more storied adventurer in this mysterious narrative realm, a developer of both video games and tabletop games, known for founding rock-paper-shotgun and big robot games. Some call him the Dungeon Master. Some call him Hunt Daddy. Others still call him Jim. Welcome, Jim Rossignol. Hello there. Are you ready to join me on a journey of magic and wonderment, fantasy and joy? Always, Marsh. Always with you, (laughs) hand in hand, Uh, as ever. (laughs) Could you tell me a little bit about how you got into role-playing in the first place? Was it something you grew up with? You were a bit older than me, but I mean, I assume it was part of the cultural imagination as when you were a teenager, right?
1: Um, I mean, it was, it was actually pre-teen that I arrived on the scene. Um, it was my slightly older cousins who had first edition Dungeons & Dragons books, and they just seemed so exciting to nine-year-old me. Do you remember the classic artwork on those? You've got like a kind of green cowled dungeon master opening a door with some fantasy landscape behind him and um, just like amazing, powerful pieces of art. And then they had the monstrous compendiums and stuff full of hideous creatures and stuff. And my my older cousin, Steve, who if you'd like to imagine Steve, is exactly the same as I am, um, (laughs) with the same voice to the point where it's a bit uncanny. Um, And uh, he ran an adventure for myself and uh, my other cousins and i was just completely taken with it and it, i immediately went off and bought a whole bunch of stuff uh with my pocket money uh which i make could make little sense of but just <laughs> loved anyway because had maps and pictures of men with swords and beards um and shortly thereafter i discovered dragon magazine which was the uh Basically, the official Dungeon Dragons magazine, although advertising a whole bunch of other stuff that I was to get into, uh, was stocked at Cordair's newsagents in St Margaret's at Cliff, um, which I which was um, so I guess I was about ten at that point. So having moved to Kent, huh. and uh, I bought it every every month thereafter. And I don't and, remember uh,
0: that magazine at all. It doesn't survive now, presumably. I
1: don't actually. I think it may do in some form. I haven't looked at it for many years, although I've kept my copies of of the sort of early 90s, um, late 80s, (laughs) early 90s era that I was buying it. Um,
0: That was my gateway. Do you remember what what happened in uh, the adventure with Dungeon Master Cousin Steve?
1: We were in a tavern, and uh, all I can remember is that There was a hideous creature, which I I should know the name of, but I can't remember offhand, which is one. And it's like a kind of a bunch of eyes and mouths all sort of mashed together in one hideous creature. And for some reason, that was in the corner of the room of the tavern we rented and (laughs) we stabbed it to death. Um, (laughs) that's all i could remember about it but i but i also remember pre-picking the monster like excitedly ruffling through the book and saying can we fight this creature and um and uh, steve obliging because he's an obliging chap What (laughs) what a nice man cousin steve is
0: how would you deal with that request as a dungeon master now can we fight a beholder in the corner of the tavern
1: See, we see, like, haven't had this kind of from from grown up, um, from grown up audiences, audiences or grown up groups. Um, you don't tend to get those. because they don't tend to get that excited about monsters and want to fight them. My son uh, is is more of that kind of that age where he rifles through pages of uh, uh, you know the, the monstrous compendium and points out. Um, there's a fantastic book actually, which is for the Niminera, um, uh <laughs> setting which has just incredible monsters in it and one of them is a giant with a portal to an alien city for a head um and uh my son saw that and he's just immediately taken with it but but didn't suggest that i uh ran a campaign with that in he said he's going to use that for his own campaign with his friends so i felt both you know proud and rejected (laughs) at the same time
0: oh it's nice that you've passed the baton on to a new generation
1: Yeah, I didn't. It didn't feel like there was much baton passing, really. Actually, because I tried to get him into it, and I bought him. There are these like beginners Dungeons and Dragons books now that very much just explain like sort of settings and concepts, and um, you know the classic monsters and classic dungeons and character classes and things, without really getting much into the rules and stuff. They're just these little hardbacks. So I bought him those, and he got very excited about them, and then just promptly forgot about it. But then he's gone to secondary school now, so there was this sort of point at which he. All this stuff that was sort of nerdy dad stuff on dad shelves that was kind of interesting, but by, by virtue of being, you know, swords and fantasy and monsters and stuff, suddenly became things that his actual peers were interested in. And so he's just gone off, and and D and D's entered this phase now where it's it's sort of post nerd, like it's it's wrapped up with all these things that are cool. Um, and so he just immediately launched into after school clubs. It's actually I think it's like um it's like a town hall club. And he's off to he's off doing adventures and running adventures there. Um which just seems like a you know, radically different to my experience as a twelve year old <laughs> yeah. of uh, you know, sneaking into the ge- the geography classroom to secretly play Dungeons and Dragons at lunchtime.
0: I can't uh, even imagine what my childhood would have been like if all the things that I was into during my childhood had the kind of cultural cachet that they now do
1: <laughs> like- yeah we, we would have been different people and there was and there was this amazing conversation that i had with him he said to me dad why do people sometimes say that uh Dungeons and dragons and stuff like that is nerdy because it's not is it and i didn't know whether to say well it is actually you big <laughs> you massive nerd or to just like accept that you know for a, for a certain generation they're moving away from that um I don't know it was really kind of a tricky like you know maybe, maybe i should say yeah yeah it's not nerdy you know buddy you know but at the same time i'm sort of reliving all the kind of embarrassments of my own uh my own youth and my own nerdy interests <laughs> but yeah de- definitely for his generation uh it's it's a different it's a different thing and seeing beautiful people streaming games you know incredibly nerdy games on twitch and stuff just yeah it's a a radically different landscape to the one we faced uh, growing up
0: what kind of form does it take for you now i mean i know the answer to this question because i'm part of that form but i mean do That's you uh true. tell us about your 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 kind of role-playing regime such as it is i mean
1: i think i had a quite a long break really probably sort of stopped at maybe 18 when i was into drinking and philosophy and and cars and girls and stuff and then didn't play for a long time um and then there was i think there was like a, a couple of brief campaigns one one run by um a, a writer from edge mark whose second name i can't remember now but anyway he, he briefly ran a campaign for for us back in the back in the pc gamer edge eras of the early noughties um And then I didn't, again, I didn't play for a few years. Then I played with some people who I'd known from university um, who had been running a campaign for 10 years by that point. Um, And it was the same campaign with the same
0: characters. And what, they just invited you into that campaign?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was so overwhelming and also required driving to Huddersfield once a month, which was just too much for me at that point. Um, But yeah, it was incredibly... It was just an extraordinary thing. Um, And they were just... Unbelievably competent and um, and just in- incredibly uh, invested in this campaign that they'd written all the stories of, and the GM would even run individual solo campaigns for the players so they could flesh out their characters more and stuff. And I just thought, yeah, that's the nail in the head for me. I did. I honestly, at that point, thought I was never going to play tabletop stuff again. So I thought there's no way I can commit to something like that. And, I, and you know, and the the amount of time and effort and and preparation and almost like just homework and project work they were doing on it just made me think, yeah, that's it for me now. Um, I'll never go back to it. Um, but then a few years later, um, my wife out of the blue asked me to run a campaign for her friends. And I think you and Graham Smith and John Walker and James Carey were mm. also interested in around the same time. Um, and well, this was, that was probably pushing ten years ago now, is it? I don't know. I Maybe
0: remember. even more actually. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was a long time ago now, but, um, but that, yeah, that suddenly made me think, oh, what, what are people are really interested in this stuff, and oh, I should spend five hundred pounds on Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> uh, books and maps and shit, um, which I probably did.
0: Yes, you should. That was a wise purchase. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which I used in those two campaigns, man. That was the mo- that that those campaigns because because I'd had like this pent up desire to get back and play, you know, be dungeon master again and and to get into that stuff. Um, I just launched into it with like a, the fervor of a, an addict denied for for decades. And and <laughs> the, the the campaign I ran for for Amanda, my wife, and the campaign that I ran for you guys were both in the same world, and you were seeing the aftermath of each other's. Um, even if you didn't know it, you, and it pleased me to know that the, the, the two campaigns were interwoven. Um, <laughs> you were like crossing paths in, in that world. And I had this kind of idea for some kind of denouement where you were fighting on different planes. But what you did affected each other. And we never got there, of course, because, you know, both both campaigns ran out of steam before uh, my extravagant plans uh, <laughs> could come to pass. Also, I did the, the most ambitious single scene that I've ever run in a TTRPG in that, which was that um wizards released this uh, grid map i don't know how much we used the grid maps playing the i can't remember um, admit. but one of them was like sort of a tile based one with with small tiles i think i think it was an official dungeons and dragons one it might have been one of the sort of other spin off ones but i i built the map so that they had to escape across the city this was this was for amanda's group I was going to try and do something similar with you. And I took apart the map and then rebuilt it ahead, almost like a scrolling video game map over the course of a three-hour session as they battled across the map. It was fucking amazing. I was well impressed with myself. But I don't think anyone around the table was even remotely <laughs> like cognizant of like how ambitious it was or... Uh, or even gave the slightest shit because they're just <laughs> ch- chatting away and looking at their phones.
0: Well, that's that's part of the the magic of, uh, particularly you as as a as a oh, uh, GM, because you you are very skillful at covering up what stuff you've pre-prepared and what stuff you're improvising, and sometimes you know. I'd ask you at the end of a, of a session. So, I mean, how much, I mean, how much time do you spend preparing that? You're like, oh no, I just winged it. <laughs> like, well, wow, that seemed incredibly convoluted and precise in a way, which I didn't imagine could be just conjured, but um, that's why I you're mean, a wizard, Jim, you see.
1: I think, I think it's much easier to, um, I mean, we'll, we'll come to talk about what the systems we're playing, but, but the sort of systems that I like playing now, they're much more enabling for that kind of play. Like, playing D D without any prep is possible but man it's a uh, you know you've got to know your shit and you know it's it's much harder you know you, you want to plan encounters and know how many goblins are a suitable number to throw at your your party mm-hmm. um and if you you know winging that is, is 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 not easy and i wouldn't have attempted to do that in the same way um and you and you know it, the, the art of doing this stuff is always, you know, because players are always going to throw a span in the works. That's the joy of it is that it doesn't matter what you prepare, really. The players are always going to walk in the other direction or, you know, they're always going to punch the friendly guy in the face or set fire to the building or whatever else, you know, you have to imp- improvise to some degree. Um, but yeah, I certainly think in, in D&D, you want to have a, a handful of encounters and possible situations ready to go. Um you know, you want to know the stats of the NPC that they may or may not pick fight with. And even if you think they don't, they aren't going to, you know, they will. And then, then you've got <laughs> to deal with that. Um, it's, it's funny, I was, I was talking to um, another friend uh, recently about the, this improv stuff. Um, and he, he, you know, he remarked, as, as you have very kindly, that, that, I, that I kind of, the, it, it, that it's seamless when I when I'm improvising, but I, I've always found that the, the the most delightful thing where these games are basically a conversation. And you know how ideas just get spontaneously generated as you're talking to someone. You know that always the, the conversation is a sort of spontaneous activity that gener, you know sort of generates stuff or generates itself. Um, but I find uh, tabletop sessions are, are very much the same. So it's the the stuff that the players do. You know the ridiculous. Uh, decisions that people make or just the incredible intelligent kind of acts they perform that you're not expecting, that's that's what's, that's why it's so alive and so um, compelling to keep coming back to is because, you know, because it isn't just the, the sort of static unfolding of a story. It is always this response like to, you know, you, you try to set up the most interesting situation you can, but it's always how players... Um, explode that that is the the really (laughs) exciting part
0: yeah i think that campaign was my way back into uh, uh, role-playing as well Mm. i had i had taken a break i mean i i can't remember when i stopped role-playing but i think my uh, i'm not sure i was maybe just an early teenager when i stopped and uh, i probably got absorbed into warhammer for a bit after that and then Mm. uh, spat back out into video games i didn't really go back to it until um until that campaign but, yeah
1: um, I had a couple of friends who always wanted to to role play um during my teenage years so it lasted until yeah until we were probably seventeen or eighteen um and we played a bunch of different things um and i would i would buy quite a you know a variety of stuff so we played um a bunch of the palladium games which were all terrible like rifts and stuff like that um we played lots of the different d and d settings um Played a bunch of Mech Warrior. I don't know if you're aware of Mech Warrior. That's become it's the BattleTech stuff. Obviously, mm-hmm. you will be aware of it from the video games. But the um, you know obviously that started out as a, an RPG board game. Um, what else did we play? Yeah, a whole, a whole bunch of kind of like that early stuff. And I would buy some just completely random things as well um, that we would maybe play for one session. And you know that would be the new hotness, and I would be into that for a bit. And um, and then completely forget about it. And then, yeah, I did. I did, but I, as as you say, did get derailed from the beautiful theatre of the mind uh, RPG stuff <laughs> into uh, Games Workshops siloed and obsessive <laughs> space war imagery, um, painting space marines and all that kind of stuff as well, uh, which I still dabble in now, of course, because who can really give it up?
0: And from for you, from there into uh, game journalism and game development, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I did Did you feel
0: like there's a through line there? I mean I didn't would... actually.
1: I thought I thought there was a bit of a disconnect for a while. I think um I talked to Kieran Gillen a while back who um who who has just produced an RPG of his own based on his uh comic, which is a sort of meta commentary on RPGs, Die. Um Die is one of those puns that seems really clever the first time, and as the more and more I say it, the more kind of like God, what that's such a Kieran pun. Um <laughs> 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 to the point of it being almost painful. Um, uh, yeah, I was talking to him about this recently, and, and he, he was saying how uh, early on he always placed these things in different categories. You know, board games are separate from TTRPGs, separate from digital games, and so on. And now doesn't feel like that at all, and is very much aware of the overlap. Um, and I think that's how I'm feeling as well now. Like, I can really see how. Um, the forms of one just bleed directly into another and that it, it is part of a continuous landscape of this activity. Um, and certainly work that I've done in the last couple of years has been directly informed, I say digital games work that I've done in the last couple of years has been directly informed by the kind of learning and exploration that I've had from learning this new wave of RPGs that we've been playing the last few years. Um, and how could it not be really like? It, I think you know that kind of work, like the creative work, design work, it's always going to benefit from cross pollination, um, and there are a whole bunch of compatible ideas in in that stuff. And so, yeah, I think I definitely, I definitely tried to keep it compartmentalized for whatever reason.
0: Well, I wonder if it's it's just because the two sort of um, ways of dealing with narrative have become closer and closer, the more sophisticated video games have got. Like, I mean, previously they're very prescriptive, right? Whereas now there's a whole multiplayer social games that kind of tap into the same sort of improvisational shared storytelling nature of of role-playing which which wasn't the case you know even things which are you know crpgs computer role-playing games are all very prescriptive methods of storytelling where the the narrative is pre-written and you can Mm. sort of move through it like a pachinko ball through a pachinko set but you're not actually improvising or changing anything And it's weird that in fact the things that claim to be rpgs are possibly the least like actual tabletop role-playing games in a weird way. Whereas something with uh, a kind of much more freeform social space, like, you know, just fucking about in Minecraft with your mates, you know, that's that. In fact, that is perhaps more like freeform actual tabletop role playing than some of the things which bear its name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To go back to my son's stuff, actually for a minute, one of the things I've been most fascinated about his, his journey in in games, because Minecraft is obviously one of the first games that he played. I think fucking hell, how is that going to change your, consciousness and understanding of games if Minecraft is the first game that you play. This game that in itself is incredibly built on recombination and has more mods than the rest of gaming put together. You know, like the the possibility space that you must immediately understand games as being from playing that. But like uh, one of the things that they do a lot is they play on um, roleplay servers in in Minecraft and then mm-hmm. invent their own roleplay systems based on combinations of mods that they've shonked together on their own Minecraft server, which is, yeah, that's an incredible kind of, you know, mutant of uh, <laughs> tabletop RPG and, and digital gaming. Um, and I, I, you know, it's just, that's going to become, you know, more, more prevalent over time, I should think, as, as that kind of stuff becomes easier.
0: Should we talk a bit about D&D itself? Dungeons and Dragons, the big, mm. the big one, the big cojona.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've uh, over the past few years as I've got more into the indie game scene, you can see uh, not just the indie game scene but like just the just the wider RPG scene. You it's interesting because you can see both the unbelievable dominance of of that as the as a form. I think it's something like 90% of games played are D&D games. And also this sense of elitism amongst those people who don't play it who want people to play other stuff and regards themselves as, you know, this kind of, uh, this sort of, um, you know, this sort of sect apart from, from D and D that, you know, that are exploring, um, what's truly valuable or interesting about, you know, which I don't think is necessarily true because there's loads of cool stuff in D D, but there's, it's, it's interesting to watch the kind of like factionism and elitism stuff. That's that, that always circulates around there being a mainstream and then, um, you know, like the, 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 sort of smaller cult interests, um, you know, d- down to this sort of battle between, um, whether D&D or Pathfinder, which are two remarkably similar games, like which is the, you know, which is the one that you would rather play and which is the best, um, uh, of those, you know, and that, that kind of like, oh, I don't play D&D, I play Pathfinder kind of thing, which I find, you know, slightly bemusing in a, You know, the idea that the swords and sorcery stat-based RPGs are, you know, there's enough to, I mean, I'll I'll probably get murdered by Pathfinder
0: fans for saying this, but there's (laughs) there's
1: enough to, you know, within that to get into an argument about, you know, the the distinction between them. Um,
0: They're both the same and they're both shit. That's what you're saying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, they're they're both fine. They're both lovely. (laughs)
0: I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I am, I'm one of the people who is slightly frustrated by the dominance of D and D, simply because uh, it has this sort of monopoly position, not, not out of any particular kind of um, malign financial, you know, death grip in the way that monopolies exist in like technology or stuff, but it just seems to be this snowballing effect where its its prominence just creates. Uh, a greater and uh, ever greater inertia, which prevents people from escaping it. Um, and that's that's sort of frustrating because there are, there are lots of different ways in which uh, you can role play. And I think there are more freeform and exciting ways. But I do really like a lot of the things about d d Like um, people talk about it being crunchy. I mean, maybe it's worth thinking a little bit about what crunchiness means. I mean, do you mm. have a take on what is crunchy about d d
1: i mean i think what's interesting is um and this is this goes across a lot of games is is how much people enjoy seeing numbers go up and seeing you know abilities expand and throwing more dice onto the table or having you know more points appear on their ui or you know th- there is a sense of people really enjoy Um, seeing systems work and systems collide together and have output and um, and D&D has this loads of dice, loads of stats, loads of spells, there's loads of possible systems that are going to mash together it's a very sort of combat orientated game Um, and there is something incredibly satisfying about that and I think there's a reason why um, dice And, you know, chance and numbers have all become um, part of the core experience of of RPGs um, because crunchiness is rewarding and also interesting to sort of work with, uh, interesting to think about, interesting to kind of, um, you know, do your homework on while away on it. Oh, what would be better you know this this selection of mm. equipment or spells you know but, but that, it is really rewarding it's one of the things that you know we know is compelling about game design and gets built into a lot into a lot of games and i think there is a loop between you know video game design and DD in terms of the way that stuff works and why players find it compelling and interesting um but i think it also kind of it hooks up with the other thing that you were saying in terms of it becoming this this sort of inertia-driven uh, monster um i was reaching for the word colossi but thought but thought of it too late to include it in the flow of speech so can we just let's use colossi because it's a much better or colossus <laughs> i don't know anyway um the, it's the fact that people have to learn quite a bit to to grasp dnd like there's quite a lot of rules there you know you're learning what your character does what what the race of your character you know also does um, what abilities they have how abilities advance over time what skills and attributes you have what weapons you have what how how the armor does stuff you know and how it all impacts on the dice you're going to roll um, and it's a sort of it, it's sort of it's sort of um, there's a sense of mastery there right like you can learn how to play your character really well. Um, but there's also quite a big buy-in to learning all that stuff. And I think one of the things that we've discussed, um, and it's certainly something that gets discussed quite a bit around um, this topic, is the fact that once people have um, played D&D and learned that stuff, there becomes this huge sunk cost fallacy of, oh, my goodness, I've learned how to play d d and it was a lot, so I don't want to have to learn another game system because it's it's going to be as much again, right? Which isn't really true in, in most cases, um, and even even in the systems that are very different, quite a few of the same principles will apply, um, or or the system will just have fewer moving parts, um, so you won't be dealing with uh, you know quite as much stuff, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why. D and D has held its grip, is mm. because people make that judgment, and you know they play it, they learn it, they're rewarded by that crunchiness, they get into that, but they also are burdened by this enormous amount of knowledge that they've accrued
0: right. in yeah.
1: mastering that, and that feeds back into oh I will stick with D and D rather than rather than learn something else.
0: Um, It's also because one of the main ways in which D&D has reached its level of popularity is through streamers as a sort of performance art. And obviously, as performers, they want their performance to be legible to an audience. So they're not going to suddenly move to a new system, which the largest part of their audience doesn't comprehend. They're going to use something which is familiar. Uh, And (laughs) that just just drives the the snowball to um, accrue even more snow. Yes, there's a lot of
1: snow involved, and, and, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think, I think, um, you know, uh, fluency within games is is really important. You know, and, and being able to understand what you see on a screen is, you know, one of the key things to, to to being involved. And I think it does have a kind of knock on effect for what people put in games and what they design. In fact, I was just having a conversation this morning with a designer who was saying that the system they had designed was unlike how other, how other games do it and consequently was questioned by everyone who saw it. They went, oh, that's weird. Why, is it, why are you doing that? Because it wasn't mm-hmm. like how other games did it. But, but it was designed for a very specific reason, which, once you got past it being odd, made it more useful and improved the game overall. But the feedback was always, "Oh, that's odd." I would do it like other games do it, Um, and you can see how that kind of comes across there, right? Because people have a level of fluency within uh, within games, they will always apply the knowledge they already have, and that can end up sort of removing innovation because it makes you know it's easier and faster to you know you've got the shorthand there to do it like uh, you know another game did it. and that's true of D and think, like there's, there are a lot of games that have basically followed that template. You know, they that that, that follow very much the same structure um, of you know having the uh, you know, set of attributes that describe the, the the characters' capabilities and and working with with levels so that characters level up over time. You know, all those all those kind of things that that have been made comprehensible by learning how to play d and d then have a knock-on effect on how other games that get made function right so mm. pathfinder might be a better d d but it is still using a template that it is you know that it has evolved from or inherited from um and i think that's that's true across a bunch of games so sometimes it takes quite a big leap um to get out of that mindset because you've been it's how you've been educated and how you've come to understand. Like, I still balk at RPGs that don't have dice in, um, <laughs> which mm. I've played a few of over the last couple of years, um, and stuff like uh, RPGs that have no GM um, and things like that. I still you know, I still struggle with, with, with some of those, even though some of them have been some of the coolest experiences I've had um, in tabletop RPGs over the past few years. I've still kind of bounced off the um, the form being different to what I'd been trained to expect it to be. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Likewise, I, I um, I'm a bit leery about stuff, which is like solo RPGs, journaling RPGs, those sorts of uh, experiments don't grab me in quite the same way. I think I, I just, I, I like the, the, the happenstance that is thrown upon you by using dice. Like I, I think if you take the dice out of d d it becomes just, pure storytelling then right
1: mm. yeah i mean maybe i i, I think um so I, I played a game not not with our group but with uh, a group that were uh, uh with, with, with gillen and, and a couple of others uh we played this game called um thistle and hearth which is um derivative of another rule set that i embarrassingly can't remember the name of belonging outside belonging i think it's called and that is is diceless and GMless but it does have a really specific set of moves, right? Like a bunch of um, things that you can do and, you know, and, and, and and sort of trigger points at which you should do those things. Um, and so even outside it being diceless, there was a sense of um, rules-derived structure to it that definitely made it a game. Yeah. Even as it was about telling a story in a um, in a communal and cooperative way, and it wasn't always cooperative actually. Like there were some elements of antagonism, and um, but I, I found that super interesting. But still struggled with the idea of there not being that element of chance and there not being the roll of the dice uh, that I'd come to expect. But 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 that's interesting in itself, right? In that we've we've now hit a point where. Um tabletop RPGs are just flying off over the boundaries that, that we'd set for them and and moving into moving into other places that definitely aren't uh Dungeon Dragons.
0: Maybe we should talk about a few of the uh other systems that are out there. Yes, yes. What would you like to talk about, Marsh Davis? Well, in a note in this <laughs> in this document we have, it says maybe we should start with the Palladium games, slash rifts. Yeah, I mean, the Playdom games slash Rifts um, were the thing that I moved to off after
1: after D anD D as a teenager. So they they were advertised regularly in Dragon magazine, and they had cool art, um, and they had the like like power armor and mutants and things like that. And um, they were my first taste of 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 their of there being anything other than uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, which. You know, was um, was formative for me, particularly and and, and Rift, which uh, a lot of '90s RPG kids will remember as being the one of the genre bending um, or genre blending maybe um, games that came out at that point. Um, I, I absolutely loved because it would put you know wizards versus power armor, or you know a dragon fighting <laughs> robot, or you know people just careening off into other dimensions and um, techno Nazis versus hippie, hippie, you know, uh, wizard guys. And um, one of the characters was just crazily pumped up on drugs, but would die after five years and stuff like this. (laughs) Um, And it was just, it was just, it was one of those games that it was not good. You know, it was, it was probably objectively bad, but it just threw so much stuff at the wall, right. That it was it was there were these huge books full of guns and aliens and robots and underground cities and vampire collectives and um speed mad maxian speed tribes and gargoyles fighting mechs and uh demons from un, from atlantis uh enslaving people and taking them to other worlds and all this kind of and it it had this kind of like lovecraft through to you know, sci-fi bullshit. It just tried to, to encompass everything. And I just loved the fact that it had blown up genre boundaries, which I'd always found quite, um, quite, I'd always found genres, you know, I think as a kid, I was quite a genre fascist. I was very much kind of like, you know, sword games are sword games and, and gun games are gun games. And and it, it, I can remember as a kid being irritated by, the 18th century because it had guns and swords right? <laughs> it's just like why that's a terrible period of history like you know it should either be you know exciting automatic weapons or you know knights hitting each other with swords there shouldn't be this in between phase that's just it's just messy <laughs> um but of course as a teenager i was like i was super into you know the the, the rules being uh blown up and uh, and they're not being any unfortunately the actual rules the dice rolling rules of um playing games were interminable they were just the worst um to the point where actually the 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 guy that i played most the most rifts with um as a teen actually remade a bunch of that stuff um as um as a d20 system oh. that, he came, that he came up with himself mm. which i'm not sure what happened to but i later learned learned that um palladium were really aggressive in going after um fan sites and shutting them down and i don't know if that happened to him maybe um
0: Fine. i, I must seems... get in talk to-
1: they must get in touch with him one day and, and find out because we were huge huge palladium fans but we knew that the system was was bad and ended up rebuilding it but i think once i played rifts and i'd had that sort of genre shattering moment um and also, I'd realized that the their rule set wasn't set in stone, and I could just move on from that, and I could play with it, and I could play with the rule set, and I could hack the system and do something different. Um, it massively opened up, um, you know, what what I was interested in and 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 what I expected from RPGs. Mm. So so while I would I can't recommend those games to anyone, um, they were absolutely critical to me and uh have remained super influential
0: i've got a list of other games here but i i imagine we haven't probably played all of them or played all of them in depth but it's probably maybe worth just uh name checking them going through them and saying what we know of them (laughs) Traveller is at the top of the list. I think this is actually one of the ones the first games uh, I played. Uh, strangely, because it has a reputation as being uh, kind of fussy and complicated, and probably not the kind of thing you play as a preteen uh, or however old I was. I think I was at like some kind of summer school or something. I had it's a very confusing memory um, tied up with um, a, a bowel complaint I got from some tainted um, pottery glass. Uh, <laughs> wow
1: that's a very specific memory interesting uh
0: yeah um but i don't really recall very much about the actual um system itself Mm. but uh, i do remember being um mesmerized basically by the idea of inhabiting um science fiction uh which was just the entire concept of that for some reason like I, i guess because uh i probably played some warhammer fantasy role play at that point Mm. Or at least, I was more familiar with fantasy as, as a role play setting. That the idea of uh, you know just 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 having uh, a space setting itself was incredibly novel and eye opening to me. Mm. Did you I, ever encounter Traveller?
1: I have a copy of Traveller right here um, on my shelf, right next to me, which
0: I've never played
1: actually. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think this is the modern reprint or the modern rewrite or edit or something of the original Traveller. Um, and it's certainly the original cover art, but is you know it's a, a, a more recent printing. Um, and I, I read it and was kind of put off by you know, its fastidious ruliness. And yeah, I think it came from quite it came, it, it's that sort of earlier era of very rulesy games, of which mm. there are many, and and, and and get those sort of games still do still get produced. Um, the only thing I can remember about Traveller actually is that it was possible to die during character creation. <laughs> uh, in, in the original, uh, uh, the original rule set, because I think I think basically you created your character, um, and it the process of creating it was to roll on a bunch of tables that sort of t- you know describe their history and what had happened to them, and things like that, and death was one of the things that could have happened to them uh, that was formative. Um,
0: yes i imagine so which i think
1: i think got, uh, if i if i remember correctly it got removed from later editions Aww. much to the outcry of the uh traveler fan base <laughs> understandably oh a...
0: well, they should still include that in character creation in in computer role-playing games like it, <laughs> you can put you can put the kind of like your stats at any level you like but <laughs> there's a certain threshold below well, which the, well, they, you've they, already they died. Of...
1: They sort of do. in In Dragon Age Two, I think it was, my wife spent about two days making her character, and then accidentally backed out of the menu, um, without saving it, uh, and never went back to the game because she was so angry that it had reset <laughs> uh, this meticulously crafted character that she'd made.
0: Oh, there you go, recreating the authentic Traveller experience, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. I've got Vampire: The Masquerade down as well, which is uh, one of the kind of games which has probably more of a, a mind share uh, in the general populace alongside D anD D, probably because of the the video games. Um,
1: yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm never certain about Vampire. Like, you know, obviously it, it it seems to have. I feel like it has a profile that outweighs its actual. Um, the, its actual population, like mm. I, 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 think fewer people play it than a bunch of other games. Or it feels like it, but but yet its profile is is quite high. I think it's because it was one of the first RPGs that seemed a bit
0: cool, mm. very like was, edgy.
1: Yeah, there was a sense of like edginess and modernity to it, wasn't there? Mm. Um, I think there were a few of those games, like Cyberpunk and Shadowrun, and a few others that just were just a bit cooler. Than the nerdy dungeon dragon stuff that we had been playing um, were a bit more urban, were a bit more aware perhaps a bit more politically aware um, and also I think the generation that were playing them had perhaps grown up a little bit more um, you know it wasn't necessarily teens that were playing it by that point, I mean I'm speculating here because I, I never got into the vampire scene and the people who played it frightened me uh, <laughs> when I was at university so yeah um, so I don't know. Okay, I can't vouch for for Vampire. Um, I have got. I did buy uh, the Masquerade recently. Uh, the I think it was just like the fourth edition of it or something that came out recently. And even even now, struck me as basically being a bit too cool, uh, too cool for me. I'm not sure I can run something that is uh, quite as slick and attractive uh, as that. I need it to be a little bit more lumpen and goblinoid. Need um, mm, to make this... sense of it
0: there's something a little bit uh disquieting in its uh its edginess because it i mean it encourages you to you are bad creatures <laughs> you're evil you're vampires uh and the the extent to which it encourages you to lean into being oh i'm really dead evil i am
1: I, yeah but i can see why the edginess would appeal right like, yeah uh, and i can see why that would give it a greater cultural cachet than than you know being being a a wizard um but yeah, I sort I sort of agree on that count.
0: Um, well, it's it's the difference between being a rapscallion as you are in many of these games, or you know, or, or somebody who lives outside the law and maybe doing bad things. But then, vampire seems to lean into fairly kind of large scale uh, indulgences of fascism. And, yes, uh, yeah, there uh, is being you
1: know being a true dark lord, um, in a, in, a, in quite an embarrassing uh,
0: way. Yeah. It's like people who get a little too into claiming their, uh, you know, their allegiance with the Sith or uh, uh, yes. Slytherin or stuff like that. <laughs> it means like, oh, you're you're the twat faction. Okay, got it. We've Brilliant. always
1: had we've always had close encounters with those people.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: none of which are, will be listening to this podcast.
0: I am certain. I'm sure, of course. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I, I I played this back in the day. I have I have actually the rulebook. Um, back home which i meant to bring you last time i was going from uh, my parents house to bath but i forgot oh. it's um it's got a, a very distinctive cover of a variously mohican uh, fantasy people cleaving each other oh, yes
1: i love that yes yes in fact i had a discussion with chris gardner from fell games and kieran gillen about what a an amazing cover that is like you know exactly what you're getting with mohican dudes beating people with axes
0: well Um, there's there's particularly i think there's a a dwarf with a massive orange mohican who is slicing an an orc from from neck to sternum (laughs) with his axe and i think that was like the most gruesome thing i'd ever seen at age 11 or something like that um and how compelling was that right oh yes i want to be a dwarf that that slices orcs from uh, temples to sternum <laughs> as far as the actual system goes again that has vanished into the mists of time i think uh, at the time it was uh, it was very uh much based on dnd and that it was very statsy and crunchy and there were like pages and pages and pages for yeah it was definitely different... a very
1: formal system as far as i can remember
0: yeah yeah over defining every kind of possible mm. weapon you could have for sure but now they've um they've moved away from that System, I think, uh, to Genesis, is that right? As yeah, I'm, I'm going to
1: say yes, but I'm sure someone will correct us if that's not correct. Uh, the Genesis, so, so the Genesis system, the, the the game that I've heard the most reports of with using the Genesis system, um, and thought about playing, but actually, we, we did play the Genesis system, but we played something else, which we'll talk about in a second. So the the, the system that seems to have, um. Brought most attention to it was the last Star Wars role playing game, which I believe a member of this podcast, uh,
0: indeed, first
1: and ran a campaign of.
0: Um, he did indeed. Um, I is think that it's campaign still
1: going. You- oh, right, okay. It's not a campaign you played it then. No, no, no. Um, yeah, and and um, so, that, so that's definitely what brought the Genesis manual to the attention um, of people, the Genesis system, I should say, but there is a system agnostic manual. Which I can't find. I was looking for it earlier. I think I've loaned it to a game designer who has never given it back to me. Um, and yeah, so that was a system agnostic and it was just kind of fascinating because it was a, it was a dice pool system with without numbers. So there's so it's dice of a poly- polyhedral nature, but each one has symbols on it, and the symbols represent um, essentially different. Um, uh, they are. are it is a currency of sorts, uh, more like a sort of narrative currency, isn't it? Um, and you interpret, you sort of read the bones, you interpret the symbols to work out what's happened uh, after any given action, uh, which was super interesting, I think. But I think our group ended up just deciding it was superfluous to like they may as well have been numbers, kind of thing, mm. um, and actually actually slowed down the process of us in of us figuring out what went wrong, like. You know, rolling a six would be a success kind of thing. That's more sensible than look, we've got this symbol, which means great, and then two other bonuses that, you know, it like just it just kind of it, it was a weird kind of, like I can see exactly what they were going for. And it was super interesting and it was super iconic and it had this kind of incredible sense of playing with something new and interesting. And was but was nevertheless a kind of uh speed bump that we didn't need or want.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's almost like they, they they had the right idea, but they didn't actually go quite far enough uh, in terms of... Yeah, because they, they
1: took that dice system and uh, essentially built it into quite a traditional stats and rule-based mm. um, system that went quite granular in terms of the things that it provided, statistics and, um, you know, and the, not the way, you know, combat work was meticulously broken down into phases and actions you could perform and all this kind of stuff. Um So yeah, again, quite kind of bitty and rulesy and formal, um, which when they were going for something that would support narrative play, uh, seemed seemed, seemed like the wrong direction.
0: Am I right in thinking that we uh, played Dark Heresy, uh, the Warhammer 40,000 roleplay setting, with the Genesis rules? Is that the thing that we attached
1: Genesis to? So Dark Heresy... um, the actual dark heresy is is some kind of monstrous d100 system from fantasy flight games i believe and it's one of the most extraordinary hardback full, full color rpg book beasts with rules for absolutely everything like you know falling from the back of a moving horse or you know <laughs> Standing in uh, oil, or you know, all these just kind of like incredibly specific situations, and then having to roll percentage-based uh, scores that have multiple modifiers applied to, applied to them. I, I was talking to someone about this recently. Um, I say recently; it's probably two years ago now, because I'm, re- I'm reaching that kind of like end, you know, like, m- middle age where I say recently, but actually mean a decade ago. <laughs>
0: um,
1: about that, in, in in a sort of. Thematically, the D100 system being baroque and forbidding is like thematically consistent with the 40k universe. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess. And you know, like the, like it wants to sort of punish you and make it difficult and you know, incredibly Byzantine to to even play. Um, but I wanted to kind of get around that because I really wanted to play a 40k game, um, or rather, me and Alex Wiltshire wanted to play a 40k game. Um, and we wanted to drag everyone else along with us. I, th- <laughs> I feel like the rest of the group were fairly indifferent as to it. What... <laughs> oh no,
0: I was, I was into it. I was into it.
1: Good, good. Well, yeah. So we so we found a community hack which converted the whole thing to Genesis. Um, and there was some really fun stuff in there, um, and it was it was interesting. And we did manage to complete the full arc. I was proud of us actually because we did the full chapter of the adventure that I planned for it, um, and it worked fairly well um but yeah there's uh, there's there's uh it's freely available online actually there's a there's there's a whole pdf of 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 uh community driven dark heresy which is converted to genesis they've done the whole manual um and the last i checked were also working on rogue trader which i i was actually what i wanted to run because i think the rogue trader r p g setting because it releases you from the constraints of being an imperial agent um although you're still associated with the Imperium. In Dark Heresy, you are an Inquisitor's Acolyte, so you have to be imperially, basically, mm. um, which I'm not sure all of our group really bought into. Like There wasn't a kind of buy-in to being mutant-crushing, heretic stabbers, um, which, was a, which I don't think quite worked for the tone of the thing. Um, and so I think Rogue Trader would have been uh, would have been better because we would have been able to do the crew of spaceship thing. And the whole crew of spaceship thing is is really, you know, I think is a great setup. It's a great setup, actually, that we have never managed to pull off as a group. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because we played Scum and Villainy, which we went eh, after a couple of episodes. Um, we did Dark Heresy, which didn't quite work as uh, a crew of spaceship thing. And we played Mothership. Which we should talk mm. about in a minute. So, indie RPG Mothership, which also we bounced off the rules for. Um, although I feel like we had the best time with that out of the out of those three. Um, yeah, yeah. I I, stro- so, yeah. I strongly want to come back to that. Actually, that that's my kind of. Um, it's one mothership. of my. It's uh, oh well yes because so Mothership will be getting like its proper first edition after the Kickstarter of, of which has you know of within which they've revised a whole bunch of the rules. Um, And the previews we've read of that make that look really exciting because it feels like they've really understood uh, the the difficulties that people had with it and the stuff that was opaque or, you know, like there were lots of things like lots of similar terms um, for stress or fear or whatever um, that, you know, would would easily confuse both player and GMs. and, And they seem to have addressed a bunch of that stuff. And also created uh, a bunch of tools for it actually being a proper campaign setting with character development, working over multiple arcs and things like that, which I think could be really, really interesting. So, yes, I I, I, I do intend... I I back that Kickstarter. I was quite excited about it and um, do intend to bring that to the table in the next year or so. so. And not just because we had a good time with the original Mothership, and I think it really captured... um, some horror stuff because I don't play a lot of horror games, right? Like, we mm. ver- rarely run things that are purely horror based, even if there's some horrible stuff that happens in our campaigns and stuff. Um, uh, Call of Thulu is the second most popular RPG I discovered recently. Oh, really? Yeah, wow, that okay. is interesting, isn't it? So, like, and that's something I've, I've never even touched on, I've never played it, know nothing about it. Um, all I know is that they call the
0: GM a keeper. That's it. That's all I know about it. <laughs> um, I played some of the board games, but I assume they don't have uh, that much interaction with the actual role playing system.
1: Yeah, couldn't tell you. I mean, clearly it's one of those ones that's sort of based on insanity and stress of mm. you know encountering the the creatures and getting you know exposed to the the uh, cosmic horrors and stuff. Um, but as a system, yeah, apparently hugely popular. I think probably more in the US where the sort of Lovecraftian mythos has maybe more of a hold than it does in Europe.
0: That's um, weird. I mean, I haven't even seen that much s- sort of um, s- you know, streamer stuff about Call of Cthulhu.
1: I mean, I'm basing this on stats from portals that run games online, like Roll20, things like that. Oh, um, wow. And hmm. that is the second most played game, as, as far as I remember.
0: Interesting. Is, well, maybe we should take a look at that <laughs> at some point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am a kind of a sucker for that stuff. I do like that uh, sort of um, that aesthetic, um, so it would be interesting.
0: Yeah. You've also written Modiphius D6 down here, which is uh, a couple of words I'm, I'm not familiar with in that combination. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, again, that's, that's not a system that we've we've run. I was just I was basically just writing down the books that I have on my shelf. So uh, the D6 system is, is uh, uh, Mr. Stalenhag inspired Tales from the Loop games. Mm. Uh, so there's Tales from the Loop and things Things from the Flood, which are Kind of Stranger Thingsy type games where in Tales from the Loop you play as some kids, um, and there's a whole bunch of you know kind of school kid based uh, mechanics in there. Like the kids can't die, for example, they're going to be incapacitated and things like that. And then you become teenagers in things from the flood, uh, things from the flood, and you can die and so on. There's loads of really interesting and cool stuff in there. And one of those games, you get to play a theme song, which allows you to overcome uh, all odds and things like that. Um, And there's there's just really funny, interesting stuff in it because it's both Swedish and American settings in there. So it's got like a list of what Jock and Nerd names are in Swedish um, and stuff like that. So yeah, Um, so their D6 system is spread across a bunch of games that I own but have never run. So those games, uh, I think the Forbidden Lands games as well. Forbidden Lands is, is super interesting. We've I mean, really, got probably haven't got time to cover it here really, but like a sort of classic, very tropey fantasy game, but using that uh, D6 dice pool system, uh, but also is it an attempt to do quite an open-ended system. And it comes with this incredible map, which has stickers with it so that you can put stickers on the map for the stuff you discover as you explore. So like if you find a ruined castle, you can stick the ruined castle on the map so that you know where it is and stuff like that. (laughs) It's just really nice.
0: That's nice.
1: Um, And uh, Coriolis as well, which is their kind of uh, Arabian Nights type um, space epic game uh, that used that system. But yeah, sadly never played that one, so Hmm. that's all I can say about it for now.
0: Numenera. Chris Thurston ran a uh, campaign of this for. Um, I can't remember who else was in it. I think probably Graham and one of the Toms. I forget which, but it was. Um, that was that was very good. I, I really I, the thing I liked most about it was the way it generated artifacts. It's set in uh, this mm. a very distant future where many civilizations have risen to space age levels of technology and then collapsed back on themselves and so the earth is just this massively scarred mess of uh distant civilizations which are also of a level of technology which is completely beyond that of the player's understanding Um, and so it's kind of this weird mix of things which are high tech but also sort of folding into myth and misunderstanding and you come across these artifacts and you can sort of um you, you roll against various different tables to assemble their their properties and the kinds of things that that system generates are just really exciting and they're often like not obviously useful and i i find not obviously useful things, the most exciting items to have mm. <laughs> in role-playing games, because ah, you, you can, it's it's then down to your ingenuity of how you apply these things. Um, and that was, that was very exciting. There's, there's also a sort of um, um, a currency system, I think where you sort of uh, you, you trade back and forth with the GM um, uh, tokens, which en- enable you to, uh, uh, enact things with greater effect but also um allow the gm to punish you with, uh, with greater effect or throw um obstacles in your path uh, at a later point you sort mm. of trading back and forth i think that's quite quite exciting as well
1: yeah i think that that kind of what i've termed narrative currency mechanic is mm. is is finding its way into lots of different games so that kind of like as you say trading back and forth trading for advantage um, uh, you know, accepting sort of narrative bargains to get out of sticky situations stuff finds its way into into lots of different games now in lots of different ways, um, and that's that's one of the things that I've post kind of like the wave of traditional RPGs that into sort of more modern RPGs and and you know sort of the sort of post D and D stuff that that kind of innovation is one of the ones I found most most interesting. Um, uh, Numenera is not one I've, I've actually run. I've got tons of the source books and, and things for it because it's just so beautiful. Like
0: mm, they're good
1: art; they are extraordinary. And, and, and just you not know, not just in the not just in the sort of art and production value of the books, but the, just the ideas. that the, the monsters are incredible. The, there's a book that's just a huge compendium of those weird artifacts, and as you say, like a lot of them are just super funny and weird and interesting things. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to be able to play a game where I throw some of those in there. Um, you know, just weird objects that do unexpected things. And because you can see the kind of um, sparks for which they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, the, the, the sort of creative ideas that that, that they're going to be, you know, like they, you can see how they, the players are going to riff off those and come up with, uh, you know, weirdly improvised solutions for things based on, ha- you know, having access to this sort of uh, eccentric portfolio of equipment. Um And I really like that in RPGs, and I think is one that does that particularly well. Although I do think it's quite formidable as a setting. Um, One of the things that we as a group have, uh, I think, have struggled with a little bit is any setting that requires the players to know quite a bit about the setting. So that was one of the things that we had with 40K, is we had two people who didn't really know anything about the Warhammer universe. Um, And so we had to kind of come up with reasons why their players didn't know anything about that universe. Um, but it didn't always make for, for smooth gaming. Um, and I sense that Numenera might have similar issues where it is such a rich universe. It puts quite a heavy cognitive load on the GM to know and understand factions and characters and uh, different types of monsters and artifacts and all the rest of it. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot there. And you know, it, it would be great to put some of that load on the players, but that's not always a thing that they can do. Like, not everyone necessarily has access to the sourcebooks, all that kind of stuff. It comes, uh, yeah, it's one yeah. Of the, that's the reason I've never run it because because it, it looks formidable to put together and play.
0: I think you know all of these role playing settings are, are made much easier if if you can cast your characters as people who are interlopers in a setting they're unfamiliar with, because mm. otherwise you have to uh, believe, you know, you have to put yourself in the headspace of a character who understands things that you as a player just simply don't have any familiarity with.
1: True. Um, true. However, and I, I'm gonna, I want to move us on at this point to, to, to the game that we have found to be the daddy mm. is that we have played maybe two campaigns of blades in the dark at this point. Mm hmm. And there is something about that campaign and the setting and the way it's set up that has removed that barrier of entry. Like, people just get it. They just understand the setting. Um, I think everyone I've played Blades in the Dark with has has sort of understood understood the assignment of scoundrels in this dishonoured sort of uh, doomed city. Um and it doesn't take a lot to set up, you know, the fact that your are criminal gangs fighting over the resources in the city. And it is quite a complex fiction, you know, like the the way that the way that um death works within it and the spirits becoming trapped and ghost hunters having to burn the spirits, or you know, all that stuff. There's loads there. But You Are Scoundrels in a Heist movie is so well supported by the game as a um as a rule set, that it coheres really quickly, and people seem to understand what to do. And I think it, it it's it's one of those things where everyone is on the page, on the same page very quickly, which I wasn't expecting of it, right? Because it's not generic in the same way as like, oh, we're we're, we're Marines in uh, an aliens game, or you know, or we're you know, a wizard and a paladin going down into a dungeon. It's it's slightly off brand. Mm but everyone kind of buys into it and very quickly understands you know how to be a scoundrel and how to play um which i think has made it a delight you know it's made it it's, it's, it's been the surprise of the last 10 years for me um and even when i read the book i was not convinced i was like i just can't see how this is going to work at the table and as soon as we played it it lit up and even the first session was absolute magic um and I feel like it's the culmination of a whole bunch of stuff, including that kind of narrative currency thing—the narrative currency and that being stress for your character, um, which you build up and have to manage and reduce, and um, can end up knocking you out, knocking your character out of the game completely. Um, and I think all of those things um, coming together—you know—that that it, it just provided this kind of. Um, Previously unplumbed depth of, of RPG experience, which I, which was been incredibly rewarding. What did you feel like? Can you remember what what, what you know when? Because you hadn't played Blades at all or read the rules or anything. No. What I was your impression re- of it when we, when we started playing?
0: I, I think. What did we move from? Had we just played a anD uh, campaign just prior to that?
1: I don't think we had played together for a while before that because you weren't part of the first campaign. In fact, no, we played two, yeah. in fact, we You've played two campaigns before you joined the group, and, yes. then, and then you joined.
0: And um, We had the subsequent two. Yeah, I mean, I found it incredibly easy to get into. And I think this is one of the things that makes me uh, a frustrated evangelist for systems other than D&D, is because I, I, I approached it with some trepidation, for the same reasons that people are often put off learning new systems. Um but it was just so uh, intuitive, um, and not only intuitive, but it was uh, the the system itself is is thrilling to engage with for reasons which are adjacent to what I was saying about the items in Numenera, where they aren't you know they're, they're not strictly obviously applicable. In in Blades, one of the, the things which I which is most delightful about it is like in D D, you have a set of attributes that you test essentially, mm. but unlike in D anD D, those attributes are very ambiguous. And they overlap. And even in the rules, it says, you know, uh, in a certain circumstance, you know, if, if you're trying to shoot somebody, maybe you'll use this attribute, but in certain circumstances, maybe this one will be more effective. And there's this huge kind of blurring between uh, what those words mean. And the, the more that we've worked with the system, the more um, uh, admiration I have for the, the designers of Blades in the Dark, because just the way that they've used words <laughs> to title those attributes is perfect. Like there's a perfect amount of overlap in their meaning and ambiguity with other attributes. It's it's an exceptional work of linguistics to achieve that, I think. Mm. But it also, as a player, it just makes things much more kind of uh, fun to improvise with. You're constantly thinking, well, I mean, okay, uh, I need to do this thing in most obvious circumstances, I'd use this attribute to test it, but I don't actually have as much, you know, uh, I don't have as many points in that attribute as I do in this other one. Can I make a case for how I'd use this other attribute to achieve this same end. And you end up, you know, like trying to work out how you'd use brute force essentially to to uh expertly snipe somebody. And and trying to make those two things fit together is 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 really thrilling. And especially if the if the GM is game for it and they're also trying to support you, it becomes kind of like much more collaborative. I mean I think you
1: you, you hit the nail on the head there with, with with phrasing it making a case for because I think that's what's super interesting about it so taking one step back right the it's an so it there's when we talk about blades in the dark sometimes people get the impression those who haven't played it but it's in in some way less rulesy than dungeon and dragons and it is in the sense that the way the rules applied are ways are, the ways rules are applied are about making a case for or having a conversation about but the rules are incredibly tightly and specifically architected to make that plausible and to provide it with a set of constraints that means that you are not just going off the reservation right there are there are mm. there are checks and balances built within it there are limitations there are but it's but the structure of the of play within it is less about working how you can stack a, a number of a set of numbers to have the best advantage on a dice roll although it is about that it's more about a negotiation of how that makes sense narratively which i think is is just mm. a, a, an amazing kind of extra step so so you should say that blades in the dark is based on the powered by the apocalypse stuff which has which is which is uh something that we haven't played but is is foundational for this where it was about moves like things that your character could do that that kind of really really sort of um, Changed the way it worked versus um, the way uh, so D&D worked. So d d would be testing an attribute against the situation rather than saying, I'm going to do this cool thing and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, and Blades in the Dark sort of took that and I think in some ways formalized it as well as sort of running with it. Um, but I think what's really interesting about it as well is that in d d you can actually have this sort of antagonistic relationship between the GM and the players. Like the GM can throw a particularly hard monster at the players that might just kill them all, right? It might just sort of knock them out. And that could just be pure mathematical crunching. Like they could not have that much chance to beat the Beholder because its hit dice are too high and it's just going to output too much damage and all the rest of it. In, uh, in Blaze in the Dark, that isn't a thing because players have a ton more agency because they can also use the narrative currency of stress to resist anything that happens. So if we come to a conclusion that your action may have this terrible consequence, like you'll set yourself on fire and drop off the top of a uh, building as has happened several times in uh, campaigns, <laughs> the um, you can also choose to say, I'm going to take the stress for, for, for me not being that injured by that or I'm going to reduce the the harm that that does to me, or I'm going to say I'm not killed by that, but I do, you know, I am horribly injured. Or and that 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 resistance mechanic, that ability to, to say like my 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 character, my character is going to be is going to increase their stress, but not suffer the consequences, means that players never have to accept the terrible thing. So in 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 the the sort of traditional crunchy RPGs that we talked about, a dice roll would hit you for a certain number of hit points, and that's that, right? Like you know the 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 cogs of the machine turn, and then it's onto somebody else's uh, somebody else's go. It's Blades in the Dark skips that, and uh, and it um, it doesn't it doesn't that skipping it's the wrong way to say that it is to say it 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 it, transcends that almost like it it, it, because it sort of ties it back it builds it back into the story and it gives the the agency back to the player and so there is this um and so while there there could be an antagonistic relationship between players and gm you know the gm setting up challenges for players to overcome in the dnd type stuff it is far more skewed towards a collaborative finding out what happens with the gm and players in, in Blades in the Dark and consequently and this goes back to what you we were saying about um, improvisation early, earlier in this chat, is that it is much easier as a GM to just sit down at the table and play to find out what happens in Blades in the Dark and and related games and not have to put in the sort of formal prep that you would want to do for a traditional game like, like D&D be just because of the way the system is set up and just because of the way so much of it is going to come down to negotiations and there's a lot of other stuff in there right a, a lot of a lot of blazing dark is about just getting straight to the action um you know the whole idea mm. of the engagement role the idea that you don't really have to come up with a plan you do it retrospectively um Blazers in the dark is the game designed around the motif of a, a, a heist movie like Ocean's Eleven, where it only explains how they pulled off the heist by continually flashing back to the things they did to set up the um, uh, set up the action um,
0: again, the, which is paid for out of the same currency of, of stress as well, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: So so while it has a kind of free form improv, delimiting and conversational approach the formalization of that through the limits of stress and the sort of narrative currency and the number of dice that you have per action and and stuff like that means that it is both, um, freeing and improvisational and extremely crunchy, right? So it's got, it's almost like the best of both worlds in that sense. And we still get the moments when you do the big dice roll and it just goes all horribly wrong. Um, and, uh, and also that kind of freedom to get out of the consequences of that and and to play with the consequences of that and to take uh, to take risks and to do extraordinary things and to, to state that you want to do extraordinary things and then see if they come off. Like I think even the way that um, rolls have different levels of worth, in, so you might be rolling the same number of dice, but if it's a, a controlled situation or a risky situation or a desperate situation uh changes the value of the dice roll right like if it's a desperate situation you screw up it's really bad and mm-hmm. like that again is again tied to it it um being plugged into the way it's uh, it, it that it tells things narratively
0: mm. so and there's gradations of failure as well i mean like mm. the genesis system uh except except with actual numbered dice rather than um strange icons that are difficult to interpret mm. um only a six is outright success. Uh, and then four and five are success, but with a complication, which the, the GM has to improvise. Mm. And then one to three is, is, is failure. Um, but just having that, that gradient uh, is also uh, just adds to the, com- the complexity and the improvisational aspect of, of playing the game.
1: Yeah, and I think what's what's fascinating about that is because it combines a bunch of that stuff, like what is the value of the role? You know, what what, what kind of position am I in, in to take that action? You know, how effective will that action be? Can anyone help me? It becomes this, every action becomes a, a collaborative and group, uh, group effort. Like I, I think so often in uh, older RPGs, you are waiting for your turn, right? One person is rolling their dice to see what happens to them and the enemy they're fighting um, in, in blades, the GM never rolls, right. It, it, they are just there as this sort of um, uh, enabler and arbiter and, you know, co- and, uh, and I um, can't think of the word, but, you know, like comp- the, your, the person you're having the conversation with the person you're kind of, and, and, and it, but it, but it drags in everyone else around the table at the same time. Mm. Um which I think is the reason why it ends up becoming so so rich when we when we played it, and the reason that we were just so inspired and excited by it as um, yeah. um, as a as, as a as a format and uh, as a platform for for making other games.
0: I do in like. Which, oh whoa, sorry. So just, can I just mention two other things about *Blaze in the Dark*? Mm. I, uh, I think I like the fact that it incentivizes you through its advancement mechanics, to do the most outlandish and dangerous things possible. Mm. Um, Because uh, only when you're rolling in a desperate situation, well, not only, but when you're rolling in a desperate situation, uh, that's the opportunity for you to gain XP. Um, Right, yeah, yeah. And that, that just inevitably... Just moves the centre of gravity <laughs> towards incredibly uh, foolish <laughs> behaviour, but which which is you know perfectly right for the the setting of this kind of elaborate heist where you want people to be doing excessive and ludicrous actions. And the other thing is the the, the consequence of um, the uh, narrative currency of stress when you take on more and more stress in order to escape the the, um, the negative consequences that you might otherwise face. So you avoid injury by taking stress instead. If when you max out stress, the consequence of that is also and to enrich the narrative, because instead of uh, killing you, you gain a new character trait, essentially, which you then have to be conscious of when you're role-playing that character in the future like a Mm. negative character trait like i forget what exactly they are termed in blades in the dark but um traumas i believe traumas that's right yeah so you can you know have a haunted look at all times or (laughs) Mm. or similar and I, i think that's a you know in a way it's it's sort of transforming what would otherwise be uh uh a crunchy stat based penalty into something much more interesting to actually engage with at the narrative level. Mm. But yeah, sorry, I yeah, interrupted I you. I I think you were going to make a segue which I I just in, pushed you off and drove into a wall. <laughs> oh that's
1: okay. No, I I I think what's what's really interesting for me is that even though that um Blades in the Dark has this incredibly kind of like prescriptive and specific application in terms of the rule set being built with a particular kind of play in mind, so this sort of heist storytelling, um, the the rule set has been uh, made available as Creative Commons um, system, and lots and lots of games have been made based on it. Um, it's become a new platform. It's become a new um, sort of stock system which is quite interesting given how esoteric and individualistic um mm. and far from the D tree it has fallen that it should become so popular and um uh during the first lockdown i played uh, band of blades uh with 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 gillen and hewitt and gardner and that was fascinating because it was, it was, it was quite a different um, system. So it's, it's a military fantasy. It's this broken army basically losing the war against the Dark Lord and then having to flee from the hordes of undead. Um, and each round is like a military mission and you play both the officers back in the camp and the, the soldiers in the field. Um and those are different characters and people will pick up and put down different characters. Um in a way that we haven't done with blades, but could, right? Like you aren't necessarily attached to your character in blades. The the important thing is the is the gang, the uh you know, the group of scoundrels and what they're up to, less than the individual um characters. And that's made super explicit in Band of Blades. Um and that and it had and it was you know, you were fighting monsters in that, and I think playing Band of Blades made me realize that adapting um uh, Blades in the Dark was going to be possible, right? That it was going to be something that could be applied to a bunch of different settings in a bunch of different games. Because I think before that, was it before that? I'm pretty sure it was before that. We tried playing Scum and Villainy, mm. which was the same rule set adapted to um a kind of derivative Star Wars-y sci-fi setting. Mm. I didn't we,
0: find that worked though. We
1: bounced off it really hard. I Interestingly, Gardner, who I also play Band of Blades with, he has just finished a sixty-episode game of Scum and Villainy, and and, and his group had oh, an wow. absolute ball with it. And I said, "Oh, but what about that terrible system?" And he said, "Well, obviously, I didn't run the didn't run the terrible campaign setting. I, I came up with an awesome one of my own." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> <laughs> that that's 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 what I did wrong."
0: Um, I well, it's help. interesting, isn't it? What so just to dwell on Scum Scum and Villainy for a second. I think one of the things that we found uh, a mismatch between the Blades uh, rule set and the setting was that Blades has a sort of uh, pressure cooker feel to it. Like everybody's trapped in this, this fucking horrible city and things are getting worse and worse and worse. And there was something about scum and villainy, uh, the, the sort of planet hopping nature of it, which lost a lot of that sense of containment and direction and focus. Do you think? I mean, looking back at it and taking on what Gardner says, do you think that is uh, that was the problem, or is it something uh, else that we ascribe to that instead?
1: I mean, the, the, perhaps that perhaps that uh, quality in blades was more important to our specific group um, than it was to others. Um, Maybe. I don't know. There's certainly a pressure cooker thing in Band of Blades as well, right? You've always got the enemy army just behind you. Even though you're travelling across a landscape, you are constantly under pressure. Um, and maybe I just didn't find a way to make that work in Scum and Villainy. And I, maybe I should have thrown away the, the the setting it came with and come up with something that would work for our specific group. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and I've heard other reports of that system being super great, and the fact that we bounced off it suggests that I just ran it poorly. You know, I didn't, I didn't do the work necessary to make it work. But I do think, I think, I think you're right to identify the pressure cooker thing as being important um, for blades because it's what makes the stress mechanic really bite. Um, and also the sort of factional stuff that takes place within it. So that's one of the things. The, one of the sort of undersold elements maybe of it that is that every action causes this reaction amongst the other factions. So you're always going to piss somebody off because you're always stamping on somebody else's turf um, with each action that you make. Um, which I think maybe I don't know. Like maybe we need to find a way for, to make to, to to bring that to life and make
0: it work in. Um, in scum and villainy we also played um cyberpunk as well
1: ah well are we allowed to call it cyberpunk because i think uh i think we literally have to call it cbrpnk because cyberpunk is actually another (laughs) rpg
0: (laughs) yes sorry you're quite right yeah it's a a very cut down is it designed for one shots particularly it feels like yes
1: yeah it is yeah it was it was very much a one-shot thing so so the the setup in cbrpnk is that um you are uh operatives in a cyberpunk world on their doing their last job and you're either going to be dead or retiring at the end of it so 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 it, it didn't have to have this the all the other structure that a campaign setting uh of that system as, as it happens in scum villain in blaze the duck does right so um those uh, in those systems, you have to have ways to stay under pressure from the other factions. You have to have ways for heat to rise, for your outfit to come under more uh, pressure from uh, the law or from uh, from other factions in the universe. Um, but in uh, CBRPNK, you just end up uh, dead or on fire, or you know, or, or having made it and you know, and having done your last job and having you know, having your mind transferred to an ai or whatever it is that you decide is your retirement um so yeah it's just pure one shot where you burn you burn through the the uh the stress uh, narrative because by the end of it it doesn't matter and you're you know you're gonna uh you're gonna win or die uh, and i mm. think we played two one shots of that um and they were both just breakneck and and great fun um yeah really again, went
0: into the uh the blades thing of of asking you or inviting you to do the most excessive thing possible at any moment. Um, and it, that definitely happens in CBR PNK where you're sort of backflipping off the, off the bonnet of a moving hover vehicle to, to pirouette through the air while shooting people. Ah, oh, great fun. Yeah, it was, it
1: was really, it was really, really good. And I, and it also, it, it, did, it, it did the just playing to find out what happens thing. Um, brilliantly in that it just gave you a bunch of parameters for how to set up and then just off you went you know mm. no no prep you don't you lit. you specifically don't do any prep you're never going to encounter these characters again whatever like where are you at a party in a warehouse what have you got to do kill the DJ you know and it's just go yeah. um <laughs> And then you see what happens. Um, and both times we played that, yeah, it was just, it was fantastic. I did do a tiny bit of prep on the first one, actually, because I was irritated that the prep that I did, I had an idea that uh, you'd have like an orbital elevator going up into space and that your last action would cause it to come crashing down to Earth. And I forgot to do that bit, which is the one bit I'd kind of prepared for it, which, <laughs> I, which I still regret. Uh, never mind. We had fun anyway.
0: We did. It was terrific. Great stuff. On the back of those, uh, those experiences, you and I, then decided to try and write our own uh, setting for a, 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 a sort of Blades-esque off-brand campaign. Um, I can't remember the exact origins of it, but I think we we fairly quickly honed in on wanting to do something in a, I think it was a fantasy world originally, right? It was a sort mm. of... Um,
1: yeah, I think we were, we were really we were really into the sort of the monster hunting notion initially, I think was it. Um mm. You know, like, uh, like, um, I think we, I think it was just sort of a fantasy zone, like, because, because the other, the, the other, game that's always been a huge influence on me is as uh, the Stalker video game, mm. and that has a sense of pressure too, right? Like, you're trapped in the zone, and there are factions that are all struggling to get what they want from that zone and colliding with each other, and, um, and it, and it very much has that, um, sense of a lot of moving parts within a confined system. So there's lots of things going on and colliding with each other, but, but no one can get out of the zone yet. No one can escape kind of thing. They're all, you know, stuck in this pressure cooker of this hazardous environment. Um, and then we ended up playing loads of Hunt Showdown as well, which doubled down on the same thing as the sort of monster hunting, magical bayou swamp um, situation. And, and And, you know, we ended up, it, it just, it's one of those things where everything seems sympathetic to everything else in terms of what we were interested in. Um and yeah, our original take was to do on on teeth was to do um to to do a fantasy world which you drew a beautiful fantasy world map for um oh, yeah which, which, which i regret we won't we won't be using because we're <laughs> moving it to uh eighteenth century England
0: that was the right choice though
1: i think, I think it definitely was um and i i think it fits our our own interests in terms of history and Englishness and horrible englishness um very well
0: yeah so now what we have is uh, uh, a massive massive setting <laughs> uh, set in 18th century uh, somewhere in the north of england some unnamed um location somewhere in the north of england which has been um quarantined after many for many years following uh, a terrible uh, occult experiment which went horribly wrong and cursed the entire location and the players are um professional monster hunters who are hired by the crown to go in and keep things sort of uh, on an even keel, uh, essentially killing monsters, yes, and and helping the people there to some extent, but largely for the um, purposes of the uh, crown's continuing mining of the area for um, occult resources. So you're not necessarily good people. um, And on top of that, you also have a hidden agenda, which might be... um, Anything from raising a, a dead god to destroying England itself, maybe both, right? You know, maybe both? both at the same time. Yeah, but it's interesting the development of this because uh, as as we kind of built on the rules um, that we wanted, we found that some of the things that we were trying to achieve with the setting weren't actually that kind of um, simpatico with the the systems. Uh, for example, one of the, the things that makes Blades so exciting to play is it's sort of um, getting you into the heart of the action, uh, where you are plunged essentially into a scenario. There's a role to determine how well the scenario is going in media res, and then you can sort of uh, do flashbacks to say how you got here and how you prepared for this particular eventuality and so forth. So it drops you right in it. But one of the things that we were thinking of doing originally was um, more of a sort of procedural investigatory thing where you're coming to a uh, you know, like a, a scene of some uh, horrific carnage and then you're sleuthing your way through it essentially like like almost like the um, Sherlock Holmes Hound of the Baskervilles sort of scenario but that doesn't quite work <laughs> with the the systems that Forged in the Dark presents because it wants to kind of constantly push you forward through that sort of stuff mm. and, and have you decide it essentially quickly in retrospect. Were there other things in the rule set that you felt you uh were sort of baked in to forged in the dark that didn't that uh that you had to sort of overcome or work around or uh, you know adapt yourself to yeah i
1: think i think i think what i was most pleased with is in the end so uh, blazing the dark sort of leans on this sort of phase system um so you 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 have a sort of uh, info so you you learn what what you're going to do you know you're going to gonna go and break into a house or whatever um and then you have an information gathering phase Um, which is quite light and is very quick. You know, it's not making a plan. It's just sort of getting some information together. Um, And we want, as you say, we wanted to kind of get the sense of a more slightly more procedural thing across in teeth. And so we've we've done something similar, but we had to work quite hard to make what we've called the investigation phase, have a little bit more meat to it. So that's slightly more to chew on there in terms of how you did that in uh, um, information gathering and, and and what that means for the game so in in blades uh you it only affects the engagement role so it's literally just the starting situation you go straight in and you know did you bribe the guard last night and and if the engagement role fails actually you tried to bribe him but he took the money and still brought more of his mates to beat you up so that the situation's immediately bad you know uh, or maybe it did work and you you know it went well but we've done a little bit more than that in terms of um if you're up against a monster perhaps you open up an open up an opportunity to have more a more classic kind of monster of the week type flashback where you're looking at the kind of ritual that you've done to overcome the monster's special powers or um uh you know so 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 we we we've we've set up um a couple of other systems but i think judging those um and getting that exactly right was the thing that was most challenging for us because we, we also wanted to capture the sense of you being in this sort of Engli- eerie English landscape um, and have you traveling across it so working out where to place the phase within that um, and still allow for this jumping straight into the action kind of uh, play that Blades is so good at that was a really tricky balancing act I'm really pleased with the this the this sort of final draft we're doing at the minute because i think it, it nails that really well but it did take a back and forth of a bunch of play testing for us to sort of say to to realize where that would work so i think it was that um blades is such a it is such a specific and so well tuned piece of uh, of of sort of gaming architecture that as you know just pulling out one bit of the arch made a lot of it fall down and then you know it was it was it was really it was more challenging than i'd realized to place those back in a way that was sympathetic to that design but also kept the kind of um mechanical backing for the thing that we wanted to create ourselves um that had this kind of sense of wilderness this sense of hardship in a rainy cold northern northern, Eng- northern england setting um and also have this slightly kind of sense of hunting down your quarry or preparing to break into a, a haunted manor or any of the other sort of challenges that we put in teeth. Um, And all, all of that's been like a really interesting learning experience um, which has been backed up by us doing some one shots and smaller campaigns. Right. So we started with uh, night of the Hogmen, which was delightful in that it was, um, like CBRPNK was a pure one-shot, right? Like it, it, it was designed to be played a single time and, and those characters aren't going to persist or, or continue. Although someone did feedback saying that they were using them in another game, which was oh, really? uh, which was really pleasing because <laughs> they, they liked those characters so much they went on to use them again. Um, but I thought that was really interesting in that the action system that we liked so much was really easy to tug out of. Uh, Blades in the dark and make work, operate on its own, and what was challenging was placing that back into a campaign structure
0: yeah. that
1: worked for the kind of fiction that we're trying to tell. Which I should have seen coming, right? Because some of the problems with Blade Band of Blades were that the campaign arc didn't necessarily quite work. So we, I don't think any of us had really taken to understanding. The fact that Band of Blades had an an end of game scenario, which judged you on how well you're done in a number of settings, so I was I played generally played this kind of like um, general lead character, and um, I I always you know because the 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 zombie horde was behind us right the undead army is is breathing down our neck so I was constantly like right let's move on as quick as we can so that we get to the big fortress with plenty of time. But actually what I should have been doing is taking lots of risks to hang around to try and get the special items and special points that in the end game decided whether we were ultimately overrun and destroyed or whether we had succeeded in holding back the horde. And um, mm. So actually, even though we we got to the castle that you have to get to at the end and fortified it and did really well in the defense of it, Overall, we failed because we hadn't taken enough risks earlier <laughs> on, and I don't think anyone. Would be, I mean, it wasn't. It's not super clear in the book, and you know, the, the group hadn't really kind of understood that that was what was required of them. Um, and I think in rule sets generally, knowing what is required of you, what's what's required of you to you know what what is expected of you, what should you be doing with these rules, what should you be doing with this setting, um, that's the thing that you've got to make super clear. Um, and it's the thing that both players and GM have to buy into, and I think that was the the thing that was m- sort of from from working on the Teeth campaign setting, which we spent you know quite quite some time doing. Now that was the thing that was the most that was the longest sort of journey and the biggest education in terms of what do we actually need to tell the players and the GM, um, and and how do we do it in a way that both sells this idea of 18th century monster hunting that we've got and supports that fiction in a way that keeps the sort of magic of um, uh, the, the uh, improv and, and freedom of play uh, that makes that system really compelling in the first place. Um, and I think that's been, I think I think that's end, actually ended up being really successful. Um, but yeah, it's been a real kind of, especially with us doing the, the one shots beforehand, it's been this kind of like evolving learning process, um, which has been really, really quite profound. Like, I I think it's sort of, I think it almost feel like it's changed me as a a GM and a writer. Like (laughs) I've got perspective on stuff from a sort of development sense, you know, in a similar way to like making a game ends up, you know, making a video game ends up changing some stuff about how you view, you know, um, playing games. You know, the right, experience yeah. of playing games ends up being changed a bit when you understand more about how cameras are implemented or how, you know, uh, movement works or you know, all that kind of game design stuff. When when you can you know, when you see behind the curtain a bit more, you end up appreciating it in a different way. And I definitely feel like what we've done um, has changed me both as a writer and as a and as a GM, um, and also as someone who pays attention to rules. And reads them right, like <laughs> really understanding how rules fit together as a larger structure. Um, has been something that has you know, I've 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 I feel like I'm better at now and and, and 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 paid more kind of like specific attention to. Um, which I perhaps didn't when it was easy to gloss over that just running it as a GM. I'll oh, we'll just leave that bit out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: In yeah, a, you can't really um, uh, house rule your own rules, can you? No, exactly. <laughs> in fact, I think there's a there's
1: a note in the document where I did suggest that the GM house rule, and a friend who was reading it said, "Yeah, I don't think you should. <laughs> you shouldn't invite them to write their own rules." I was like, "Yeah, no, we shouldn't." Yeah, you shouldn't.
0: <laughs> so one of the things we sort of semi accidentally achieved by doing the one shots. Because we sort of like paused development on the full rule set and then focused on doing something like much smaller scale and stripped back. We ended up sort of creating this on ramp for the actual campaign itself. I don't think I I don't think that was your intention or my intention when we started uh thinking about Knight of the Hogman. But it's this it's like this very fast paced, incredibly low prep one shot. It's got very simplified rules. And we ended up creating something that was like actually a, a really good primer for blades style games themselves and then when we moved on from that i mean that's uh, to explain hogman a little bit it's this sort of breakneck escape from a horde of mutant pigs and the game sort of basically bounces players through a bunch of little vignettes towards uh, this denouement and because that sort of narrow focus and, and it's very structured it makes it very kind of grokkable for new players or and like new role players entirely i think and then when we moved on to Blood Cotillion, we sort of enlarged that. There's a few more rules. Has a lot more kind of uh, it's it's a lot more freeform, but it's also still focused on a single location and a single evening, uh, you know, in which the, the players attempt to assassinate these cultists at a, at a at a ball, sort of like a hitman level, but as a as a role-playing game. And then the third module we released was Stranger and Stranger, which is like a mini campaign, it's much more open-ended. There's lots and lots of material the GM can draw on optionally. Uh, and the the players uh, uh, are this, this band of villagers who get increasingly horribly corrupted across the, across the course of the adventure. And they have to find some way to save their village from destruction uh, by a monstrous creature before their own mutations become unmanageable. And I think with each of these, we have sort of opened up the scope. We've added complexity and freedom. And I think, I think you could probably take someone who's never played a role-playing game before and sort of bounce them through these modules in sequence and end up with a player who is, you know, ready to go on a, on a full-fat rulebook, ideally of teeth, uh, you know, for our, the interests of our bank balance. But I think it would apply to really any role-playing game. It's just, it's just a sort of a, a good ramp. Um, now, that's just, you know, that's just a service we perform for the world out of the profound goodness of our hearts. Do you know, um,
1: Ollie who is a regular group, Ollies Gilman-Wilson, who's a regular member of our group, had never played any RPG of any kind before he played Blades in the Dark. Mm. And I wonder how that will structure his experience of RPGs generally. Um, And I've I've, I've chatted to him about alternatives, and we've actually played something close to D&D now, like one of the OSR rule sets, as they're called, and, um, he's he's very lukewarm on them, and, and I wonder whether, having come from in from this direction, <laughs> he will never play D and D, and consequently will you know ne- never have the kind of perspective on it, you know, with, with this idea as D and D as a baseline uh, mm. that we have. But yeah, anyway, I'm I'm digressing really from from uh, from from the point there. I, I, although uh, Ollie did help enormously in. Um, uh, testing teeth and was one of the uh, one of the most entertaining players um, because he's always he's 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 extremely uh, inventive and original in his play. And one of the one of the sort of themes um, in teeth, the, the big big teeth in uh, in the campaign setting, is this idea that you have um, a sort of group agenda um, and. On top of that, you can have a personal agenda which should be related to it. So, for example, they were a group who were in it for money and and, and their motivation was to get rich and get out before they were horribly corrupted. And it leads to this kind of um, inventive horror comedy. Um, I'm not sure whether it was us that called it this or, or somebody else, but, but it was this idea of it sort of The Witcher meets Blackadder so mm. it's got that kind of it's very english but it's got quite kind of um it's, you know it's got the monster hunting the monster hunting vibes that can stretch to being quite eerie and serious at the same time um and one of the things that was great in that is is, is in in the um one of the one of the opening adventures um ollie had declared that he was a sort of um taxidermist and his his plan for making money from uh, the, the the creatures of the Vale, uh, the monsters they were killing was was to um, was to preserve them and stuff them and uh, <laughs> and sell them on. And uh, it, they and on the fly during one of the play tests, he came up with one of the best sequences I've ever I've ever seen, where they were fighting in a in a brickworks, and so he surmised that there must be a kiln in which the bricks are fired. And I say, yes, yes, of course there is. And the creatures that they were fighting were formed of clay and mud and other detritus. And so he lured them into the kiln, (laughs) sealed it up, fired the kiln, and then, of course, had the creatures preserved as themselves, as pottery, that he could then put on a barge and ship off to his uh, benefactors in London to make Mm -hmm. a a, a hefty bit bit of cash. But I I, I feel like that sequence um, was emblematic of, like, the improvisational richness of the setting and also the kind of comedy of it as well because it was a really funny uh brilliant sequence of role play
0: um, right yeah i mean that- i i think that a lot of that comedy we've just i mean we sort of baked it into the setting obviously uh ollie's improvisation is another another level of of player invented silliness but like I feel like there's there's a lot of comedy in the actual writing itself or at least you know I think it's funny <laughs> um, but you know there's grotesquery there but there's also absurdity and just and farce and like it's it's as much as influenced by the league of gentlemen and and monty python as it is by any pure horror text but I feel like and this is this is sort of like this question or sort of maybe bring us out of teeth and back into larger role playing experiences but i feel like that's not really just exclusive to our experience in the setting but it just seems generally true of all the role-playing adventures that you and i have had where there's always like it's always deeply macabre in some way but there's there's often a a very slapstick element to the proceedings and i just i you've you've played with many more groups than i have and is that just what happens generally or is that something that just is true to our group and no one else i
1: think it's more true of our group um I have played with groups who've taken it quite seriously, um, and I've played with other groups where it has oscillated back and forth. I mentioned that I played with a D and D group that ran for ten years, mm. um, and and they they took it quite seriously, and they had some real tragedies, like you know, like tragic death sequences, uh, love affairs, things like that, that went on. In their, in their games. And they took that quite seriously and they, they cataloged it all. But also, in one of the sessions when I played with them, um, some kind of anti-magic creature dispelled a pocket dimension filled with naked dwarves, which were then sprayed over a battlefield, <laughs> landing as we fought uh, these anti-magic giants, which was one of the funniest sequences of anything that I ever <laughs> encountered. And, and, and the, the whole table was struggling to... Um, struggling to breathe as they were as they were uh, dealing with that because uh, it was just so beautiful. <laughs> so I, so yeah, I think I mean it, it depends on the GM, it depends on the setting. Um, you know, I'm sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier in in terms of you know could could you could you really play Vampire the Masquerade in a really funny way, or would you have to take it a bit more seriously?
0: You know? Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think you. Yes, I th- I don't think you could. I feel like so I was, we played, I was you, a bit mean about Vampire the Masquerade earlier, actually. I don't know. There are things I really like about the setting, and obviously the fascism thing is a problem for me. But then, mm. um, you know, it, it's, there's something very evocative about cities at night, and it's very divorced from the the, the sort of uh, the antics or you know, farce that can happen in role playing settings. But it's just, you know, there's there's something uh, there's something very evocative and powerful, and moving. I think about being on your know, lonesome in a in a city at night, mm. where there's a, just a sense of opportunity, but also danger but also also a sense of relief from the modern world and its busyness do you know i
1: was uh, uh, just going back to your point there on on silliness and and on settings and stuff i wonder one of because one of the one of the really beautiful games that i that i love deeply that we we sort of bounced off when we tried it which was simba room Mm. um lots of people aren't familiar with simba room but the setting is one of the most beautiful settings largely you know Partly because of the writing, largely because of the incredible, um, uh, artwork by a chap called Martin Grip, who paints throughout that. And, and, and the presentation of the room books is a really strong argument for one artist doing the whole thing, right? Because it just gives it, mm. it, it, it just imbues it with this kind of incredible sense of, of smoky, mysterious visuals, um. But we bounced off that, partly because I think the rules set didn't really gel with us. And it's and um, it's one of those settings that I, I longed for a second edition, but what mm. actually happened was that it was, it was converted to uh, fifth edition d and D. I I know, it feels like
0: what... they, they recognised there was a problem, but came up with a wrong solution. Uh... Yeah,
1: I, I really feel like the Advanced
0: Player's Guide and the core
1: rulebook for that could have been merged into a single book mm. with a really heavy edit. Um, because they are just such magnificent books, and they're so beautiful. I've got them on my shelf here, and I just... I love them and I do want to try playing Simba Room again perhaps with yeah. a different group because I think one of the things is we are so inclined to comedy and farce in our groups that actually the, the, the very sombre tone of Simba Room didn't quite work for us because we were yeah. taking it quite seriously and in a lot of the spell descriptions are very dark, the situation is quite grim. I, um, I
0: think I was playing a, a goblin with an a unsavoury enthusiasm for strangulation so I don't I don't know that I... I um... I fully committed to the seriousness of the setting. But exactly. You're right. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's it was it was a disconnect for me because looking at that that book it's beautiful and and, and uh, there's something very powerful about this um, dank wilderness of forest it's can just you know a sea of wood um and yet you know uh, I mistakenly probably brought to it our our usual nonsense and that was that was perhaps a mistake. I mean, the option is there to play a goblin, right? So, you yeah. know, you, you were going to do that. And I do have busy along. hands, you know. Um,
1: but it it is, is—it. but the, even the goblins in it themselves, are re- even those, you know, those comedy characters of our enjoyment of fantasy tropes are tragic in it because they mm. only live for a few years, yeah. mature really quickly and are uh, taken advantage of by all the other races because they're quite dim and all this kind of stuff, which is um it's all quite sad and like the ogres in it they sort of emerge cluelessly from the forest they don't know where they came from elves in it are these oh, yeah, hideous sinister. kind of um grim forces of nature that evolve and become just more and more monstrous as they get older you know everything about it is sort of you know traditional fantasy tropes but corrupted and 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 dark and it was mm. it was i think it was just a bit too grim dark for our group we needed to take it a little bit more lightheartedly didn't we um,
0: yeah
1: uh, I mean, uh, one of the things i would say about Simba Room as well i think and perhaps one of the other reasons that we bounced off is a little um, is that the what what the sort of what the game wants you to do is is not super clear like it it is a very general lightweight rule set but it is a game about surviving this incredibly dangerous forest and i'd never felt like it imposed rules that Or I don't know, provided rules, maybe not imposed. It's not the right word, but it never provided this uh, like a a rule set that made sense for me in terms of it being. Oh my goodness, we've got to survive this incredibly hostile environment of a cursed alien forestscape. And also, it was it it strongly implied that you were supposed to do dungeon crawling and go into tombs. But it also it didn't feel like an RPG that was a dungeon crawler. There's a lot of games that are set up, you know, like the big one for going into dungeons and fighting monsters. And although there are fantastic monsters in it and fantastic context for dungeons and stuff, it didn't feel like a game that necessarily invited that, uh, which is a bit of a strange tension
0: within the rule set and the setting. Yeah, the forest itself was just one gigantic dungeon in a Hmm. way. There's... It's a sort of strength of the setting, and it's also its weakness because it is, you know, the idea of this sea of forest is 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 powerful and inviting, but at the same time, there's no, there's innately no structure to a forest. That <laughs> so there's, I mean, I'm sure in in your your adventure you had had planned out some, you know, navigable routes between narrative points for us, hmm. but like as a player, it was just, you know, it was just trees. Uh, and it wasn't clear you know what the objectives were in there because it is it's just this unknowable mysterious place and Mm. you know I I, I felt like we were wandering in there without really a huge sense of defined purpose like we 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 had objectives actually but but in terms of like there was no kind of spatial sense to it that you could really grok and I think actually Mm. that's kind of oddly important to me maybe that's just because I you know I obsess over maps but like um, it
1: is an odd map, isn't it? The, mm-hmm. the, the map is very odd. It is this sort of this a bit of civilized civilization along the bottom and on along the left hand side, and then just a vast yeah. forest that implies nothing. Well, it's um, a map
0: with a giant hole in it,
1: <laughs> which is basically. which is it, it, uh, which is weird because it's incredibly evocative and yet sort of slightly off putting at the same time. I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. There's there are odd tensions and difficulties within Simbrium that I wish were. I mean, I know I know why they did that because it was this intent, in, you know, this this the intention to give the the GM and the players, a really big blank canvas based off this sort of rich and exciting initial um, fiction, which is great. You know, it's it's just a really fantastic setting. But yeah, I I do, I feel like it's one of the ones that needs to to be revisited and it just didn't, it didn't land for us, which was was a tragedy for me because it's one of my sort of favourite, favourite games to look at and leave through. And and going back to what I said earlier about, you know, the monster books always being exciting as a, an amazing monster codex with some fantastic stuff in it. Um, it's actually Symbol Room is one of those uh, one of those RPGs that highlights for me that um, buying and collecting RPG hardbacks can be its own hobby. You don't have to play them; you can <laughs> enjoy the hobby of owning uh, these incredibly lavish productions uh, and their beautiful books.
0: Did you want to talk about um, Mothership a little bit more? Because we did mention it earlier and said we would return to it. Um, and there's a new um, yeah. version of it coming out, right? We we played an early early beta version of it, um, which we we yeah. had some trouble with, but I'm I'm excited to to go back to that. Uh, I well. am as well, actually. Yeah.
1: So it had uh, it, they did a Kickstarter for it um, after having done this sort of open release. So they released the rule set for free, and then there were a bunch of paid modules and things. Um, and we played one of the modules with that rule set. Um, and the, the kickstarter went absolutely gangbusters raised huge amounts of money i think both myself and alex ended up backing that so we'll have a couple of copies of it when it comes to it um but it had this incredible sense of um tying together tropes from a lot of classic space horror movies so it felt a bit like aliens it felt a bit like event horizon um and it felt like you could really do a lot with that and Some really great writers produced fantastic modules for it that had a kind of sense of sort of 70s and 80s cinema doom to them. Um, And I've never seen our group take a situation as seriously as when you were boarding one of the uh, derelict ships, um, (laughs) like tentatively exploring it. I think nothing happened in our first session, and yet everyone was on the edge of their seat because they were expecting... Uh, terrible horrors. Well, the, the um, weird,
0: and there's a tension there because you know in horror films, the the characters are stupid, right? They they throw themselves mm. into danger. They always split up. You know, what's that knocking in the cellar? I, I'll go down there by myself with my torch that doesn't you know work properly. You can't. Yeah. It's very hard to get into that headspace as a player who has some desire to preserve their character. And yet that is the kind of motor which makes a lot of these horror films work is, is just the dipshittery of their actual protagonists. Uh, and I, I couldn't quite get into that. And I think that made us very tentative in a way, which which was tense and uh, definitely exotic in terms of the, the kinds of games we normally play, but, but also probably sludged up our progress in a way, which was maybe unhelpful to you <laughs> as the GM.
1: I don't know. I think it was it was a really interesting change of pace for us because it was it was interestingly it was closer to that sort of dungeon crawling experience than we normally play. We Mm. normally play quite open, mad heists and chases, and uh, you know, going to a party and all these kinds of things. And this was there was a dead spaceship on, on which board everyone on on board which everyone was already dead, and you were exploring it, and it was incredibly tense and slow. I really enjoyed that because it was such a great change of pace. Mm. I think that edition of Mothership had a bunch of slightly confusing, similarly named terms like fear and stress and things yeah. that were distinct um, uh, currencies and, and stats and stuff, but didn't. Um, uh, but, but it became a little bit confusing. Um, and as I understand it from having read a lot of the updates from the Kickstarter, they've taken on board a huge amount of that sort of feedback and and have uh, tackled it in the, in this new edition so I'm really interested to to go with it but, I, but we we quickly adapted it though I think I mean we there was a a blog that one of us found that had a, a, another group's house rules that they'd posted up yeah and we immediately adopted several of those and I think that that improved and uh sort of sustained the mm. experience because um, well,
0: one of the, the the main problems uh with the the rules out of the box is that it's for, it's, for, it's a game that generates characters who are very much like the characters out of alien uh essentially useless space nobodies who are destined to die horribly which is which makes sense given the kind of pitch for it but it's also quite frustrating in terms of player agency because it was basically impossible to do anything like uh like as a pilot of a, of a spaceship no role I could make had a better than fifty percent chance of success, <laughs> and then things got worse. So it, it was it was sort of vexing. But then I think we did fix it by house rolling it a bit, and yeah. also maybe we weren't um, we didn't approach it in exactly the right way. I've heard uh, other people say that in fact we should have just rolled very very rarely. We should have only rolled in uh, in extremists, and everything else we would just accept happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's a classic
1: uh, mistake on the GM's part that I that I still make regularly is expecting dice rolls when you don't need to make them, um, and I, it's it's something I've written I've written in every single thing that we've produced. You know, don't make a dice roll unless you know you it, 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 it's you know you have to. It's really about something, and yeah, I still make that mistake when running <laughs>
0: um,
1: because it's just exciting to yeah. snatch up a handful of dice and make the roll and see what happens. um inject that capricious moment of the mm. polyhedrals coming up.
0: I tell you what, one thing I'd like from uh, future mothership modules is uh, greater delineation between the kinds of space terror <laughs> that are available. Uh, mm. Cause I like mothership can obviously do alien. It can do event horizon and it can do even like fairly outre 70s pulp sci-fi cover mm. weirdness and like, I don't all think those things would fit in the same film. And I don't know that they all fit in the, the same uh, module. Um, but maybe maybe there are dedicated modules which sort of drill down into the themes of one or more of those. Because then you can, you know, like you get this, like, like Alien is just really grounded. It's incredibly grounded. And from the yeah. chunky buttons on the dashboards, the way that characters talk over one another. And even the Alien, which is like this unknowable terror. But it's also like very physical very real it's kind of alarmingly sexual and organic in ways that are like perversely familiar and all of that is very different i think from like the operatic metaphysical unhinged nonsense of event horizon and like Mm. i don't think you can put those two things side by side although fucking ridley scott has tried in the which is one of the (laughs) reasons the reasons the new films absolutely fucking suck i think but yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean there is there's a wealth of, of of different approaches to um mothership, and I think I would actually try. There are some much weirder, as you say, more metaphysical modules uh, out there, written by some really great um RPG writers. So, yeah, I think we would go from the the sort of claustrophobic space horror that we were playing, and perhaps try some some other angles as as, as we go into it. Let's say maybe maybe it's not a campaign maybe we play a bunch of you know a, a couple of sessions and everyone dies um yeah. it, you know and the, 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 which is a, a popular motif in in games um over the past few years to to have that kind of disposability and uh, uh, and and it can make for a a, a great um a great one shot a great short experience if you know um everyone's playing for death as it were um, um and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I know what you mean, though. As a group, I think we really value our characters and don't want to, them to die. And um, but maybe that's maybe that's the thing that injects the tension when we when we are mm-hmm. faced with those kind of situations where you know that sort of loss is almost inevitable.
0: I'd like to hear you talk about uh, two other um, RPG systems, particularly Aegon and particularly Die, because I haven't experienced either of these. Uh, and they sound very cool. Aegon's by the same people who made Blades Blades in the Dark. Perhaps you should explain it.
1: So Aegon is uh, what um, Mr. John Harper, who who, who created Blades in the Dark, did next, and it's a fascinating sort of cooperative um, competition-based system. Um, And so Aegon itself is Greek heroes. And I was I, I I was a bit trepidatious starting out because I love Blades in the Dark quite a lot. And From what people what I'd read of it and what people had said about it, I thought it oh, sounds a bit complicated. And when I looked through the rules, I was like, "Oh, that's really, that is quite kind of quite formidable." It's a very really dense rule set. Um, but the consequence of that is that it creates Greek heroes with an interwoven story within minutes. And when we started our, our campaign, um, we had very quickly created. Um, believable coherent um greek heroes with their own um patrons and 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 gods who held a grudge against them and so on um and so as you play it's, a, it's another dice pool system but but with lots of different dice this time rather than the sort of a fistful of d6s you, you visit the sort of the classic pantheon of lots of different polyhedral dice but you generate that um uh, dice pool through a bunch of different things using the favor of the gods but also using your your name and your epithet um and the 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 sort of um uh I can't think of the word but the the the, the area that your hero is is most proficient in mm. um and then as as you roll the dice um you, so you, you 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 face a situation each of the heroes will um uh, we'll, we'll, we'll roll. And then the one who does the worst goes first in describing what's what's happened. Uh, and then it goes through the group until the, the most successful of the heroes describes how they finally fully vanquish um, the the situation you're up against. So, for example, um, the three of us were tackling some harpies that were attacking a, a Greek village on this island. And my character failed completely to do what they were trying to do. So I described the the way um, I'd heroically leapt from rooftop to rooftop and then crashed through the rooftop into some terrified villager's kitchen. And then the next person um up described how they battled the uh, the harpies by climbing a tree and grabbing one by the foot. And then and then the final one was, you know, firing blazing arrows or something that, that saw them off. And what's fantastic about it is it 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 lends itself to this sort of ancient Greece um Feel by deciding who is best, right? So you're all slightly egotistical, or not even slightly egotistical, like wildly egotistical, um, <laughs> uh, Greek heroes, you know, who, who want to be, uh, want to be sung about, you know, want to be, you know, want their stories told, and so you are up. I who you know who is best? You decide each round, and you know I am best, and so the the glory that you get from winning these encounters is literally the XP. So the XP system is called glory. And the more <laughs> glorious you are in, in, in your actions, um, the, the more you advance and the more you unlock the favor of the gods and um, the, the, the greater the epithet you can apply to yourself and therefore the bigger dice attached to it and so on. Um, which which And, it, and it, just as Blades is sort of incredibly finely tuned to, to tell those kind of steampunk high stories, Aegon does that for um, the, the classic Greek myth um, and well, I th- and again, um, John Harper sort of opened that up to, to to people to be able to make things from it, and and himself is uh, is making playbooks and rule sets based on that for something else. And what what I think is amazing is he's this is his, the think the next up thing that he's done is a is L.A. Street Gang. So basically, Fast and Furious um, will be the next, you know, the, oh, the wow. adaptation of that. So going from Greek heroes to. Um, you know, street street racers. Well, it, because isn't
0: the saga the new epic poem?
1: Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it, it just it just it it just, it, it, just it, it just it seems so right. You know, like um, the, the who is best? You know, amongst Greek heroes, but also against you know amongst uh, LA street racers. It <laughs> just made me laugh out loud when I saw it because it made such a be- beautiful sense. Um, but it, it it is inspired. Aegon. It is one of the most extraordinary works of game design I've encountered. Hmm. Um, I think it, Chris Gardner from Felbetter ended up running it. And I think it was quite taxing for him to do so because he had to get on top of the rules and prepare some stuff. Um, so it was not it's nothing like as light or as immediate as Blades in the Dark, but um, enormously interesting um, in the same way. And so the other person in that group was uh, Kieran Gillen, long-time mm-hmm. comrade from... Father of games uh, journalism... Yes, um, inventor of comics. He did invent comics. It's true. Um, so one of the one of the comics he invented is called Die, which is um, a satirical take. Is, is it satirical? Yeah, I suppose. that. It's certainly um, a meta breakdown of, um, of RPG stuff, which mm. uh, is almost almost sort of a commentary on his own life because it's about um, uh, a group. That played as teens returning to their game in later life, and and like the D and D cartoon, it's about becoming trapped inside the game, mm. uh, being dragged into the game world for real, and it places the GM as a character uh, within the game world. So you, as the game kicks off, you create your persona, which are the players who are playing the game, and then they have their personas within the world. So you are you are creating. The player who's playing the game as well as the character, which all sounds uh, incredibly convoluted, but uh, the genius of, of, of the way he's done it is that it is gently prompted together by a series of questions that teases out who you are, what you're interested in, um, uh, and, and then that, 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 that all then that ends up creating the relationships between the players, and then that, and then creating the characters themselves um so we had a group that were um had had relationships that were involved around uh, a convention um for the the robin hood tv series uh that that came out in the 1980s and they were the people that ran those conventions and they become quite incestuous and um there was bitter recriminations back and forth and so on and it was it. It was very funny. It was it was uh, the die comics are quite dark. <laughs> there, there, there's some real psychodrama in them. Um, in the in the session that we ran, it, I think it's you know partly partly because of the group we were, but also it shows the sort of flexibility of it that it was it, it was very very funny. Um, with with Gillen sending up, um, classic fantasy tropes, um, and. The, the world the world is destroyed essentially at the end with um you know you you facing down the the gm character um uh, uh, who is who is a psychopath of course um and has all <laughs> these kind of extraordinary powers um and it, it's it's interesting the way he's he's he, like all, all of the rule set almost is because I mean, it is a, an original um and unique rule set but it is all based around the the sort of Iconic material that makes up RPGs. So each player gets uh, one version of the dice. So, like one character class is d eight, one's a d six, and so on. And that that dice is specifically tied to the kind of abilities that they have, and only they get to roll it. Um, And you know, there is a little ceremony where your your dice is physically handed to you um, as 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 the as the game kicks off. And it's 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 the the fact that he's been able to be so theatrical and play with the with the tropes that naturally have emerged from this stuff the that makes it so so compelling and so funny. Um and you know the fact that we know these kinds of people, we've grown up with 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 this this stuff and this this mythos. And um and and, and you know, Gillard did an enormous amount of research in this. He's got Piles of books that about like the early D anD D scene and the nineteen seventies, all this kind of stuff, um, which all fed into it. Uh, and it's it's um, it's almost it's almost academic in in a sense, while also being really sort of silly and funny and chaotic in the way that Gillen's writing is um i mean obviously we were lucky we were really lucky to be to have the creator of the thing running the the session for us um but it feels like every group is going to get some kind of weird chaotic psychodrama out of that
0: yeah.
1: um out of that system i'd be slightly
0: um, worried that it would turn into like performance therapy and i think that that might be uh uh you, you need to be careful who you play it with <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah potentially yeah yeah i, th- I think that's uh, I think that's a real risk um But also, you know, it it could end up being... um, I mean, ours, I think, was because we made up such outlandish characters, they didn't end up being about us personally as people, Mm. but we did create some really interesting fucked up characters and their relationships and explored those. Um, You know, everyone around the table was a writer, so it had a certain amount of energy from that, I think. Um, But we ended up watching a guy playing U2's Uh, a sort of a man perhaps in his early 50s with a a little pork pie hat playing u2's one on a ukulele (laughs) as the closing moment (laughs) to that adventure which i think uh sort of summarizes the the flavor of the uh, experience
0: (laughs) a couple of questions just to close out how would you convince someone who is resistant to the idea that they should play role-playing games what would your sales pitch for role-playing be well, I, we did trick somebody into playing it well,
1: uh, a few years ago where they said, oh, I like board games. And, of course, you can play Dungeons and Dragons, for example, and plenty of other systems with some little miniatures and a hex map or a tile map um, on the table and very much pretend that it is a board game. Um, and But then just get to ask them some questions and pull them into the narrative. And I think the the ease with which people find themselves answering those questions and realizing, Oh, actually I can do this. I think it gen- genuinely, it's a gen- general, it's a sort of anxiety. Oh, I'm not sure if I can, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm not sure if I want to do it. Mm. Um, and if you can just get them past that first hurdle, then um, generally people get it because it is based mm. on the games we played as children, but we're adults now kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, it is doable, um, but I can understand why some people will never take take that step, yeah.
0: which is a tragedy, in my view. What would your pitch be for n- playing not D and D games? to people who just played D and D. Variety is the spice of
1: life, right? And there are there are just so many incredible pieces of work. Um, and I think the thing to remember, uh, like cause I think, quite often the people, the reason people don't come out of the D and D ecosystem, as as we mentioned earlier, is because they feel like they have learned and mastered a rule set. They don't want to have to do it again. And so many of these systems can be learned incredibly quickly or piecemeal over time. Mm. Um, And they just offer such uh, a breadth of not just fictions, but the way rule sets support fictions. And I I mean, if there's one thing I hope we go out of this conversation, it's articulating that many rule sets support fictions in mechanical ways that are super interesting and are nothing like uh, the way you experience things through the um, rule sets of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, And, you know, in the same way that, you know, if if all games were Monopoly, we would live in hell. Um, You know, there's there's way more to to, to the RPG scene than... um, (laughs) Than uh, the, the, the D D rule set, and yeah, yeah get, getting past that, you will just uh, open up some big horizons. Play Night of the Hogman, as as you say that. I, I think that I don't think we've mentioned this anywhere that it is actually a really good onboarding introductory light thing. You know, I, I don't know we've mentioned it, literally mentioned it now in this podcast, but I don't think we've mentioned it anywhere <laughs> in our fiction promoting our work that it is very much this kind of um,
0: welcoming uh, onboarding thing. So yeah, come if for the Hogman, try it. Yeah. Stay for the pies cursed pies if you'd like to check out hogman or any of our other modules that we've released there's three of them hogman is free or at least pay what you want you can do so by going to teethrpg.itch.io they're all there and you can probably find information about our forthcoming mega setting uh, there as well we also have a newsletter uh, which is cool uh, TeethRPG.substack.com, which you can sub to, and you can get various musings on role playing stuff, news, as well as information about the status of uh, Teeth, Big Teeth, the main setting, uh, which is hopefully going to Kickstarter soon-ish. Question mark. Soon-ish. Yeah. If you'd like to tweet us, you can do so by tweeting at Crit and Crowbar. If you'd like to tweet Jim, you can tweet at Jim Rossignol. If you find his name to be disquietingly Bonapartist, it is in the show notes spelt correctly. These recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash and Crowbar. And thanks as always to our backers on Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash Crowbar. Or you can join our Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crateandcrowbar.com. I've been Marsh Davis. And I, Jim Rossignol. Fare thee well, travellers. Bye.